time to start looking at 2016? We'll talk about that and more with Steve Gardner, Senior Fantasy Sports Editor at USA Today, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 4th. It's show number 52 and the last show of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and it is a great Friday finale for you. We'll talk with Steve Gardner, Senior Fantasy Sports Editor at USA Today, about 2016 keepers, managing in September, streaming position players, his fantasy awards picks, and more. We'll also have our regular weekly Talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about narratives and spreadsheets and much more. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Cubs hitters Javier Baez and Kyle Schwarber, plus more, and from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at outfield shuffles in Seattle and Kansas City, some interesting call-ups, and much more. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Angels left-handed pitching prospect Sean Newcomb. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at keeping tabs on innings limits in Chicago and Washington as we hit September. In our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Kelby Tomlinson, Cameron Rupp, and Aaron Altair. And in our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at a National League Central showdown with Pittsburgh right-hander Garrett Cole in St. Louis to face Cardinals right-hander John Lackey, plus other weekend matchups. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's the last show of the regular season. What better time to talk some baseball? And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports... Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, for the last time, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Oh, thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. I should say not the last time ever, just the last time for this regular season. <laughs> last time this year. Yeah. Last time this year. Uh, earlier this week in playing time tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com, our National League Central Analyst Brian Rudd looked at the Chicago Cubs middle infielder Javier Baez, who was sent down earlier in the year, tore the cover off the ball in AAA, especially on the power side, and now he's been recalled with September call-ups. So what do you think we should be looking for with... With Javier Baez. Well, this is one of the most going to be one of the most interesting September call-ups I think to watch. It, it should be fun. Um, Baez really did. Baez last year when he was in the majors had had contact issues, and he's the kind of ball player we know he's going to have contact issues. Uh, and then fifty-five uh, percent contact rate a year ago, one sixty-nine batting average. I mean, so he needed to go back to the minors, obviously. Contact rate is, uh, is, has been up, uh, at AAA this year from 66% a year ago to 72% this year. So some improvement there. And as you said, just tearing the cover off the ball, uh, hitting 317, uh, 534 slugging and 262 at bats at AAA Iowa. So the guy, we know the guy has, has monster power. And, uh, if he can make contact or when he makes contact, the ball is going to go a long way. So it'll be interesting to see in September how he handles major league pitching, if he can get his contact rate up from that, from where it was a year ago. 
uh, from that, that 55% contact rate. Uh, and uh, we should see some power coming out of that bat. In the minor leagues, he, you mentioned he had a lot of trouble making contact, which is kind of a precursor to having the same sort of trouble at the major leagues because of an all-or-nothing offensive approach. But one thing Baez has in his favor, he's a pretty slick defender, and certainly the Cubs have been uh, jockeying guys in and out of the position with relatively little success so far this year. They're a team with playoff aspirations. Where and how does Javier Baez find playing time in what looks like a logjam at second with uh, Chris Coughlin? There's uh, Tommy LaStella, the, um, what's his name, Starlin Castro, who's uh, in the doghouse there. Seems like the position is wide open. What are Baez's chances of catching a piece of that playing time? Well, I think there's a good chance he'll catch some play time if he hits. And, and the other thing, of course, is that uh, we've seen uh, Chris Bryant be moved to the outfield at this point to kind of open up third base. So, uh, that so the, the, there's a possibility there that uh, some of those guys somebody could slide over to third base and Baez could play second. So they're juggling some pieces around trying to see what they can do in terms of getting the best defense on the field as well as getting all of their uh, their bats into the lineup. We're projecting Baez to struggle to find playing time. Less than 30 at bats, a homer or two, a handful of RBIs, uh, and a two twenty one batting average. Probably not a lot of help, but if you're gambling, it might not be a bad play. Uh, staying with rising stars on the Cubs, our facts and flukes analyst Greg Pyron at BaseballHQ.com looked at catcher outfielder Kyle Schwarber. And what Greg says is that while the Cubs and fantasy owners have to be pleased with what they've seen so far from Schwarber, there are causes for concern. There are indeed at this point causes for concern. Schwarber's been hitting very well, and I think the thing that's got to please fantasy owners is the Cubs have been using him as a as a part-time backup catcher uh, as well as in the outfield. So when you've got a guy with Schwarber's, uh, with Schwarber's uh, batting prowess, uh, playing catcher, that certainly is uh, is worthwhile for your fantasy team. In the outfield, perhaps not so much. Uh, the problem, of course, at this point is, again, uh, Swarber needs to reduce his strikeouts. Uh, he's got a, a contact rate that really, at this point, is very concerning, 66%, uh, and, and that's got to worry you. On the other hand, on the flip side of that, a 12% walk rate. So he's, he's showing a good batting eye, uh, 357 on base percentage. So getting on base at a decent clip. So right now hitting 263, XBA of 253, hitting the ball pretty hard, hitting a lot of fly balls, uh, extremely good power. Uh, so it's one of those kind of mixed bags again where you hope the batting average doesn't drag things down too much, uh, but at the same time, excellent power uh, coming out of Schwarber's bat. The real concern uh, that has been about how we can hit against left-handed pitching uh, and that's not started out so well. Uh, only 48 at bats so far, but only a 50% contact rate of 558 OPS uh, against left-handers, and uh, that could spell some trouble down the road unless he can figure out uh, a, a way to deal better with left with lefties. He has 19 games at catcher already this year, which means uh, if he if he plays at all down the stretch, there's a very good chance that he's going to end up being uh, uh, eligible at catcher for next year, which is a big plus for him. As you mentioned, there's some uh, very valuable power there uh, in the position, not so much uh, in the outfield, as you say. Now, is there any concern here that... Uh, um, Schwarber missed uh, Friday's game against the uh, Diamondbacks because he had some problems with his obliques or ribs. Uh, those kind of injuries tend to linger and be problematic. Well, they do indeed. And I think at this time in the season, especially, you've got to watch those. There are a lot of guys all over who've got various kinds of dings and, and bumps and, and whatever. And it's a time when owners need to be really watching their lineups to see how they can how they can uh, compensate for those kinds of problems. So certainly need to watch that and make sure that he's going to be able to be back in the lineup fairly quickly uh, and continue. 
BaseballHQ.com projecting Kyle Schwarber for five home runs and 16 RBIs in his 92 remaining at-bats, assuming he gets back quickly from the injury. A batting average of around 243, and as we've said all year, Nick, at 243 sounds pretty poor by past standards, but is not that horrendous in the modern uh, baseball game. Uh, in a batter's buyer's guide column, analyst Stephen Nickrand looked at players whose skills changed the most from the first half of this season to the second half, and among the hitters, Stephen tagged Pittsburgh outfielder Gregory Polanco, who was pretty much a one-dimensional speed asset in the first half, but has provided a lot more in the second half. He has indeed. I mean, since the All-Star break where he's hitting 318, his uh, four homers, four stolen bases, uh, OPS is up from 653 to 870. Uh, contact rate is up is up just a bit. So it looks like the kind of a guy that could be a uh, uh, an outfield building block as you head into the future. I mean, he's 23 years old. Uh, is he a guy that can eventually do 15-15 or maybe even 20-20? Uh, that certainly possibility, I think, is certainly there. Uh, right now, we're seeing uh, just kind of league average power, which might help him, uh, might uh, say, you know, you're not sure he's never going to get to the 20 home run plateau, but uh, I wouldn't rule it out at this point. He's very young. His uh, power index is up from, from 73 in the first half to 101 in the second half. Uh, expected power index up to 123. Uh, so here's a guy that, uh, if you're in a keeper league, might be worth uh, worth considering uh, if there's a way you can uh, pry him away from his current owner. And if you're not in a keeper league, he's certainly a guy you might want to put a little highlighter mark next to for your uh, cheat sheets going into next year because there's going to be owners who look at this season and see the whole thing and don't realize about the splits and something else about uh, Polanco that I really like in the in the last month his hard contact index is all the way up to 127 and his expected power index to 143 so you now have a guy whose speed index and power index expected power are both well over 140 and that's the kind of power speed combination you don't often see I understand the batting average risk but somebody who's hitting the ball that hard Boy, you got to like that for batting average, too. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, with the kind of hard contact he's making, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at overall what happened this year, there was a kind of a uh, a tail off. He hit 226 in May, only 200 in June. But uh, the other months are real good, 278 in April, 273 in July, 330 in August. So uh, a, a little bit of a tail off, and, and you can maybe kind of expect that at age 23 in a couple of months. But uh, uh, certainly there's a, a strong building block there for the future. There's a temptation when we see these kind of stats, especially expressed over time, to construct a narrative that fits what we see, which may or may not be the case. But it does kind of look like you have a a guy who starts off hot, the league adjusts to him and he cools off because all of a sudden the pitchers are getting the better of him, and then he readjusts back and and you see uh, the uh, skills start to come to the fore again. Uh, I will say that that's a narrative that we're imposing on the stats rather than knowing for a fact, but it, it... the, just the fact that he's improving as the season wears on rather than getting worse is a real positive sign. And one other thing I like about him, Nick, 5% home run per fly ball rate. If that goes up at all, you're talking about a real genuine threat to hit 20 home runs, if not next season, pretty soon. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, that, that home run fly rate should definitely go up and that will make a big difference. Polanco's projection at BaseballHQ.com is for two more home runs, just eight RBIs, but four stolen bases and 12 runs scored, the red-headed stepchild of rotisserie scoring, with a 250 ish batting average in about 85 at-bats. Uh, Stephen Nickrand also did the same first-half versus second-half analysis in his starting pitcher buyer's guide, and one of the many pitchers he mentioned there was Milwaukee right-hander Jimmy Nelson. 
Boy, we've heard that name a lot this year. Uh, uh, and what Steven says is that Nelson is showing more positive gains in the second half than pretty much any young starter. Steven is not given to hyperbole, so this sounds like high praise. Yeah, it really is, I think. I mean, if you look at if you look at what's going on with Jimmy Nelson, struggled it definitely in the first half. I mean, a 421 ERA, a 129 whip. Uh, skills were so-so, 75 BPV. Uh, but Steven said then, you know, this guy is showing flashes and, and intriguing skill flashes. And uh, so hang on to him and or, or roster him if you can. Second half, 2.15 ERA, 1.04 whip uh, prior to a recent sort of blow up. But improved skills, 8.4 dom, 2.7 control, 50% ground ball rate. Four-seam fastball velocity has increased from 93 miles an hour to 94.1. Uh, that would put him in the in the top five in the league among first half, second half uh, improvements. So, uh, here's a guy you've got to look at as a as a premium breakout target, I think, for next season. Definite keeper and certainly an excellent uh, guy to target for next year. Although I bet you're going to be uh, not the only person in your league who thinks so. Uh, our projection for Jimmy Nelson for the balance of the season: two wins, a nice 360 ERA with a 123 WHIP, a little higher than what he's been doing lately. 30 more strikeouts in five more starts. Nick, uh, thanks for this uh, this week and of course for the entire season. It's been a real pleasure to have you. Thank you, Patrick. It's always fun to, to do this. And we'll talk with you again next year. All righty. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchups analysis for BaseballHQ.com, and he's been our man on the National League beat all season and in many seasons past, now that I think about it here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn one last time to the American League and BaseballHQ.com director of news and analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, what's happening? Hi, PD. Not much. What's going on out there? Oh, there's plenty going on, uh, especially with a lot of interest in the Toronto Blue Jays, of course, up in this neck of the woods. Uh, a lot of interest in baseball in general and lots of interesting races to talk about. And uh, I'd like to talk about what's gone on in September. It's usually a slower time of year, but we've seen uh, some trades. We've seen some DL moves. We've seen roster expansion and call-ups. All kinds of things going on, and uh, let's start in Boston. The Red Sox announced that uh, Hanley Ramirez, is a big dollar signing in the offseason, is not going to play anymore in the outfield for the rest of this season, and he hasn't played since August 26th. They say he's got a fatigued shoulder. This is interesting news if you happen to hold any of the many other Boston outfielders. Yeah, I actually have uh, Jackie Bradley, so I was kind of thrilled to, to hear that because uh, Bradley was playing, I think, um, well, maybe starting four or five days a week. And now with uh, with Hanley both injured and not playing in the outfield anymore, it's real clear to me that uh, Bradley, Rusny Castillo, and Mookie Betts are going to get 90% of the uh, the outfield time in, in Boston. Uh, uh, Bradley's been kind of amazing. I don't know if you followed him. Um, um, he's got a 1.076 OPS in the second half through 96 at-bats. Five home runs, but with some astounding power metrics. Now, his history shows little of this, and he's probably going to back off at this some point, at least next year. But if you own Bradley, he's been great. So is Castillo. He's hit 338 in August. Uh, these three are going to play all the time in September, and Boston now hopes they'll be together for a long time. I don't think anybody's going to be surprised about Mookie Betts getting playing time. It's Castillo and Bradley, as you say, who are the big gainers here with the with this kind of news. And Jackie Bradley, do you think he could be one of those post-hype guys that we talk about every so often? They come up with a big fanfare and they don't do very well and they get sent down. And, 
and we forget about them. And then on his second try, he's got a bit more maturity, maybe a bit stronger physically, and all, all of a sudden he looks like he belongs. Could this be the, the start of a pretty interesting fantasy career? Yeah, I think it might be. I mean, I don't I don't think he's nearly this good, and uh, I talked to Ray Murphy and some other Boston fans, and, and they don't think he is either. But if you remember how bad he was when he, when he came up, at least offensively, um, um, it, it's got to be somewhere in the middle. His problem is a is a contact rate in the low 70s. I'm not sure how good his batting average is going to be over the long haul, but he's got good patience. He's got a little pop, and I don't know whether you've ever seen him play defense, but uh, I saw him when he first came up a couple of years ago, and he made two of the best defensive plays in one game. I mean, he's he's he is going to be a good player, I think. And of course, we do say that if a player can handle the glove work in. Uh, getting through slumps, he's going to have a longer rope from his manager because they like seeing those balls becoming outs rather than falling in if you have lesser fielding players out there. That said, uh, most managers are looking for offense from their outfielders, and that's going to be where Jackie Bradley makes it or breaks it, I think. Yeah, you're right. Um, he's going to have to hit uh, 250, 260 with a little pop to make that defense work and to keep himself in regular playing time. But uh, he sure has uh, gone a long way toward that uh, late this year. Plenty of activity in the Kansas City outfield as well. Alex Rios has, of all things, the chicken pox, and uh, they're worried about it spreading in the clubhouse. He's going to miss at least a couple of weeks. Meanwhile, though, Alex Gordon has returned, and they acquired Johnny Gomes from Atlanta. So if we assume that Lorenzo Cain's not going anywhere unless he gets sick, Alex Gordon is back, he's going to play left. There's a bit of playing time up for grabs in right field. We've got Dyson, we've got Apollo Orlando, who played some there when Rios was on the DL earlier. We've got the newly acquired Johnny Gomes. We've got the call-up Terrence Gore, who can really fly. And Mike Shears covered this in playing time today. What's going to go on in that outfield? You know, that's a good question, particularly for Jared Dyson owners, because despite his track record over the past uh, uh, three seasons, and despite being the best defender and the only left-handed batter in that group, Kansas City doesn't seem to want to use Dyson that much lately. He only has 31 August at bats. If, if you look at Paulo Orlando, who's a right-handed hitter, he has 44. Now you add Johnny Gomes to the to the mix, and it looks like a three-way job share uh, down the stretch. And now, like you mentioned, given the the uh, addition of base runner supreme Terrence Gore, you even have to wonder about Dyson's stolen bases for the remainder of the season. I expect that there's going to be a lot more pinch running going on, so that may be uh, a little bit of an opportunity for both Gore and Dyson to share some stolen base opportunities. It's going to be interesting to see whether they look at Gore or Dyson the first time a pinch runner possibility comes up. Yeah, uh, uh, Gore was automatic last year in September and October. I think he stole... uh, five bases in September, three in the postseason, and he was perfect. I think he was eight for eight during that time. So uh, again, uh, and, and I think he only had one at bat last year. So um, he's he's been called up for one specific purpose, and that's to uh, steal a base in the late innings. Scott Feldman left his last start early and had a MRI and an injection of some kind, putting at least maybe the rest of September, certainly part of September, in jeopardy. That's going to have an impact in the Astros' rotation. You covered this in playing time today earlier this week. Yeah, they already had five guys, the Astros did, with McCullers, uh, Lance McCullers being limited to spot starts to save his arm. Now, we could see someone like Brett Oberholtz, who has a lot of experience, return to help out on a short leash. But I'm thinking Vince Velasquez, who's already better than Oberholtz, or he, and, and he's made seven major league starts already. 
he was pretty effective at midseason. Uh, I think four of those starts were what we call PQS doms. They were very good outings. Uh, he has a, a 3.62 ERA over 50 innings, most of them in starting. That's a guy I think if they decide to uh, go outside the box could be a, a sleeper here in, uh, in September. Uh, and frankly, I think um, Houston's in a bit of a dogfight with Texas now. So it'll be interesting to see with what they do with uh, uh, Scott Feldman out. That's an interesting component to this issue. If Houston can pull away at all, they're going to have an awful lot of opportunities to rest some players. I'm going to ask Steve Gardner about that uh, a little in a little while in our feature interview. But for right now, while there's a dogfight going on, you have to you have to think that there, it's going to be all hands on deck until Houston either settles the issue or they may just have to run all the way with their best players till the last day of the season. Well, the thing Houston has going for them in that uh, AL West fight with Texas is they've got way more arms than Texas, and they've got a lot of versatile guys both in the bullpen and in the rotation. So you're right; they're going to mix and match. They're going to they're going to use uh, some pitchers in. Uh, in short, uh, short appearances, matchups, one-hitter matchups, and out. Uh, that's what roster expansion allows you to do. One of the reasons I hate roster expansion, by the way, uh, also in Houston, Jason Castro, the catcher, has gone down with the dreaded oblique injury. Uh, manager A.J. Hinch says it's probably unlikely that we're going to see Castro after the minimum on the DL. So with this announcement and what we know about oblique injuries, it could be uh, the end of the line for Jason Castro, at least the regular season. You also covered this in playing time today, Jock. Is Houston going to turn to Hank Conger for the at-bats, or are they going to try somebody else? Yeah, it looks like Conger to begin with, and Conger hasn't been bad this year. Uh, for a long time, he was one of those few catchers that didn't allow a pass ball. He's pretty good at keeping uh, the ball in front of him. Uh, he's terrible at the running game. Offensively, he actually surged in the middle of the year. He's he's already set a career high for home runs, I think, with nine or ten. He has slumped a little bit recently, but uh, Houston has also called up Max Stassi, who was once a pretty decent power and patient prospect with good defensive skills. Stassi's problem is that he got hit with injuries. His batting average went underwater. Power stagnated a bit. Um, expect Conger most of the way, but uh, if Stassi's healthy again, his defense might give him a chance to snake a few at-bats here. And of course, if he gets a few at-bats, he could get hot at the plate. As you said, he has something of a track record for decent power and decent patience at the plate. You know, we've had stranger things happen than a guy getting a few at-bats and getting hot and getting a lot of at-bats as a result. Uh, in Los Angeles, the Angels return David Freeze to the lineup from a broken finger that he had. I'm going to guess straight back to playing third base every day. Yeah, I noted in another playing time uh, today piece that... Uh, Freeze at least still hits the ball hard and he's capable of driving in runs even though his ground ball rate has has always capped his power and his batting average. Uh, Caleb Coward is a fine defender and uh, interesting longer term but his contact is still an issue. He'll hang around and pick up a few at bats versus right-handed pitchers at best and perhaps a few more if the Angels get eliminated shortly from postseason contention but uh, it's still Freeze's job for this last month of the season. Austin Jackson got traded in a post-deadline move from the Mariners out of the league to the Cubs, and that seemed to put the center field job up for grabs with some outfield prospects that Seattle had. But Rod Truesdell noted that in playing time today uh, that the Mariners have some issues in this outfield slot, and uh, in the first few games anyways, I've noticed that they've been playing Brad Miller out there. 
Yeah, they started playing Miller there um, just right before or right after the trade, uh, uh, and he's only had, I think, six or seven games in center field now. It's it's hard to say whether they're serious about him in uh, center field for 2016 or whether it's a it's a stopgap. I mean, obviously, after just a few games, it's hard to get a read on his defense. Uh, he's a he's a good athlete. He's got good speed. Uh, on the offensive side, he's always had decent power and speed, and he's actually improved his batting average a little in the second half. Uh, he's hitting 267. Um, he's going to get most of the center field at bats, or at least it looks like he will, against uh, right-handed pitching. So expect him out there 65-70% of the time. Uh, Sean O'Malley, a journeyman outfielder, got a start there uh, against a left-hander the other night. Uh, he's probably not worth picking up from a fantasy standpoint. Uh, Miller is probably going to get the playing time. And, uh, and this means that Brad Miller won't be playing shortstop, so I assume we're looking at Chris Taylor and Kettle Marte? Yeah, Kettle Marte is, uh, is, going, is getting the extended look, obviously. They want him in the leadoff spot, and actually he's been, he's been a pretty good there uh, in his uh, small sample so far this year. They don't know if he can play defense, uh, if he can stay at that spot, but they're going to keep him there. And Chris Taylor, who's a terrific defender, he's back up, so he'll, he'll spell Marte at, uh, at shortstop if, uh, if Marte has problems. A lot of September call-ups, of course. Most of them are just there to plug roster holes and and uh, give guys a, a game rest here or there. Few prospects for the also-rans are going to get looked at, but uh, there's some who are more interesting than others, especially those who have played some at the major league level. A guy like Dalton Pompey, for instance, Jock, of the Toronto Blue Jays, started the season as something of a surprise with a very limited minor league experience. They put him out there to start in center field. He, uh, to be charitable, he wasn't that successful. He got sent back down all the way to Double A. He's since been back in Triple A, and now he's been promoted. Uh, what does this mean, do you think, for Dalton Pompey, short and long term? Well, I remember you and I talking about Pompey in the spring, and I thought he was rushed, and I, I, I wasn't sure that his contact, which is for the type of player he is, isn't great. It's in the high seventies, low eighties. I didn't think that was going to help him stay in Toronto, and sure enough, it didn't. Uh, uh, I think he hit uh, he hit below 200 in that first stint in April before he was demoted in early May. He's actually had a pretty good year uh, after he was demoted. Uh, I think he hit he's hit 307 for the for the year, stole 23 bases. His batting eye is still pretty good. He walks a lot. Um, I, I think he has a future. I'm not sure where he fits in September, given the presence of Revere and Pilar in Toronto and Toronto in a. Uh, in a, a postseason fight, so um, I'm not sure he's gonna, how much help he's going to give fantasy owners. Do you think he's he, he'll be do, doing a lot of pinch running in Toronto uh, over this uh, next month? I'm sure he will. His first or second game back, he stole second and then stole third, scored on a, a sacrifice fly in a, in a very close and critical game, so I, I think they see him as definitely pinch running material. Uh, the longer run, I, I don't know. He's got to cut down on these strikeouts uh, 25% of the time this year, a little higher than that earlier in the year, 28% in a cup of coffee last year. He does draw a fair amount of walks, but that's been dropped down to about 6.5% this year from almost 10 last year in, in that short run. I think Dalton Pompey has to prove that he's capable of handling the plate in order to have any kind of long-term run in the outfield, especially with this, the, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a surge or a, or a sudden explosion into prominence of Kevin Pillar, who's been just tremendous for the Jays, both offensively and especially defensively. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Toronto's, Toronto still has a pretty good system. They traded a lot of it off uh, in preparing for this postseason run. 
Pompey also has to worry about uh, what's coming up behind him. You got a guy like Anthony Alford who was playing football before this year, and he's just exploded uh, with just a year of professional baseball. Um, he could come very fast. On the other hand, uh, uh, Pompey is still only 22 years old. He's a pretty good athlete. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how his career plays out. In two levels in the minors this year, Jock, he's hitting 307, which is a f- big improvement over that sub-200 that he launched uh, earlier in the year in Toronto, as you, as you mentioned, plus all those stolen bases. I think Dalton Pompey has a chance to be a really good major leaguer. I'm just not sure he's going to be doing it right away, and certainly not for a team that has World Series aspirations like this Toronto Blue Jays club. In Minnesota... Kenneth Vargas started the season as the full-time DH, lost that role because he couldn't put the bat on the ball, got demoted, now he's back. But he's looking at Miguel Sano, maybe the best power hitter in all of baseball, in the DH spot. What are we looking at as far as Kenneth Vargas doing anything? Well, it's interesting. As you said, uh, Vargas, when he was up, he wasn't striking. He was striking out way too much. Uh, 49 strikeouts and 161 at-bats. He batted 248, so he wasn't being overmatched. He wasn't hitting for a lot of power. The Twins wanted him to change his approach, so he went back down to the minors, and he actually did. He found his power stroke. He started to walk a lot more. He struck out a little bit less. He's always going to strike out a lot, but if he can walk and hit home runs, I think he has a future longer term. I'm probably one of the few people that still believes in uh, in Kenneth Vargas. I think he was rushed last year. He jumped to the Twins from AA after only a half a season and hasn't had, hadn't had any AAA exposure. But like you said, um, the big question for him in terms of September playing time is going to be Miguel uh, Sano's hamstring. Uh, uh, Sano sit, sat yesterday against um, uh, Chicago, and Vargas found his way in the lineup. And he actually had a pretty good game. He walked twice. He hit a single. He struck out once, which, like I said, he's going to do. But um, I think if he gets a chance, uh, I think he's got a long-term future. And finally, Jock, the White Sox recalled Eric Johnson from the minor leagues. He's had 10 starts at the big league level, an ERA just short of 5, a whip uh, 167 or higher, something along those lines. He hasn't had good skills, dom rate of about 6.3 strikeouts per nine, a 4.6 walk per nine control rate, 1.4 strikeout-to-walk command ratio. These are not the mark of a good pitcher. But in Charlotte this year at AAA, he had 22 starts, pitched to a 237 ERA, 112 whip, had pretty good skills, a 9 strikeout per 9, 3 walks per 9, his strikeout to walk ratio just over 3. Mike Shears looked at Eric Johnson in playing time tomorrow. What are we to make of Eric Johnson as a prospect? Yeah, Johnson is an interesting story. He was he was. A, a legitimate prospect at the end of 2013, and uh, and that's when he made his major league debut. And he had a pretty decent sem- December. Uh, I'm sorry, September for the White Sox. Then he actually won a 2014 rotation spot based on that work and his spring training. But then he flamed out horribly. He he was demoted and he was terrible in 2014. Had some injuries, lost some velocity. He really got it back together again this year. If you look at his numbers, he allowed 108 hits and 132 innings in AAA. He struck out over he struck out over nine batters per nine innings, 136 strikeouts, walked 41. He had a 2.37 ERA in AAA, and I actually thought he was going to be up earlier uh, this year. But the White Sox rotation stayed healthy, and uh, they're going to give him a shot in September. Uh, Mike Shears also wrote about this in his playing time uh, tomorrow piece. Johnson will get a couple of. I think he's starting against Kansas City. In fact, on Sunday. Um, his biggest problem is fly balls. It's going to be interesting to see what he does with his new opportunity this September. 
Eric Johnson has been one of those guys who's teased us and kind of got us interested in his minor league market. Hasn't been able to make that leap up into the major league level, but he's uh, still in his mid-20s, a chance maybe to step up again maybe in September this year and maybe uh, in uh, spring training next year. Yeah. And, uh, and when you think about the I, – I talked about the fly balls he gives up. He is a fly ball pitcher. He only gave up five home runs in 132 innings, which isn't bad for a fly ball pitcher. It certainly is not. Uh, somebody to keep in mind for next year. Jock, thanks a million for talking with us again this week and for being such a terrific reporter all season long here at Baseball HQ Radio. Great, PD. Thanks for having me. It's always fun. We'll talk to you about all this again next year. And in the meantime, we'll see you down in Phoenix for First Pitch Arizona. Absolutely. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and a speculator columnist at the site. And, of course, he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature expert interview, Steve Gardner from USA Today, usatoday.com, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Gavitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by the senior fantasy sports editor at USA Today, Steve Gardner. Steve, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks, Patrick. Uh, always a pleasure to talk baseball with you. How are your fantasy teams doing? Um, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm chasing two major prizes. Uh, one is AL Labor, and I've got about a 20-point lead in that, so I'm looking pretty good. The other one is in the FSTA League, and uh, I'm going head-to-head with the uh, master himself, Ron Chandler. Down the stretch, we're virtual dead heat. We've got a month to go. And uh, in a mixed league, it's going to be a, a knockdown, dragout affair. And I'm really looking forward to it, even though Ron has closed what was once a 10- or 15-point lead in that league to, uh, to virtually nothing now. Uh, we're going to talk about this in more detail a little later in the show, but what can you do in September to hold off a charging Chandler and just keep your team running smoothly? I think the, the main thing is to not get too in love with the players that have carried you if they're not able to finish strong. And so it's uh, a case of maybe having to replace some pitchers who've, who've, uh, who've been doing well, but, you know, you've got to stream those pitchers. It wins. Obviously, you don't want to chase them during the regular season, but when it gets down close to the end, sometimes you have to, and it may come down to a matter of, of which guys have the best matchups and which ones you can get in your lineup and, uh, and hope that they do better than the ones that the other guys get in their lineup. Now, are, these are fab leagues, so you have an opportunity to do some tactical bidding in that score. Have you been doing that, or have you been riding your hot hands pretty much the whole year? No, um, 
been streaming a, a lot with some of those last pitcher spots. Um, uh, Rysel Iglesias is a guy that we picked up uh, a, a little bit uh, ago and have been trying to, to ride him a little bit. Uh, R.A. Dickey has had a pretty good second half, so he's one of those guys. On the other hand, Carlos Martinez, who's been really good all season, has, uh, has kind of faded off a little bit, so he's worked his way into the background. It's, it's really nail-biting, and, and especially when you've got an entire month left, it's, um, it's certainly nail-biting in September when there's not a whole lot you can do with the disabled list and, and things like that other than just try and pick the right guys to start every week and, uh, and leave the guys that will slump on your bench. Now, I know USA Today has put a big push behind uh, Daily Fantasy Baseball. I assume you're active in that game. How is that going? Going great, actually. And, uh, I mean, we're not going to knock down any of the uh, fan duels or the draft kings, but our game fantasy score is, is similar. Um, it's a two-pitcher site, so if, if you like that format, you can get uh, a couple different pitchers. Uh, and, and a lot of the strategy involved there is, you know, go for an ace and then try and find a cheaper pitcher that has a good matchup and then build the rest of your offense, as you do in, in many other daily fantasy leagues. So it's, I, I like it. It's, it's, um, it's not on a huge scale, like I said, but it's where, where people can jump in, can get their feet wet, can learn the game, learn how to play, learn some of the strategy, and, um, and occasionally play in a beat an expert game uh, with myself or, or Tim Heaney or uh, some of the other folks, even some folks, Ryan Bloomfield from Baseball HQ is, has been our expert of the week uh, on occasion and, and done very well. What's that like when you, when you do that and you're the expert and you get beat? <laughs> It's, it's really humbling, I'll tell you, Patrick. The first time I did that, I finished probably third from last out of 70. You know, and it was one of those, you know, Max Scherzer has a bad start, and my entire infield goes 0 for 26. You're going to have those types of days, and, and that's the one thing with Daily Fantasy is you can you know, be like a, a closer who gives up a game-winning home run. You just have to be able to put that aside and say, you know, that's, that's not me, that wasn't, the, uh, that wasn't the, the smart player that I am, and go back and, and get them next time. And, and uh, usually, you, uh, if you can keep your wits about you, you can, you can do a little better. And uh, as long as you win more than you lose, that's, that's the, the main point. When you play in one of those formats where it's beat the experts, does everybody who beats the expert uh, win cash, or is it just a, um, a chance to participate against the expert, but it's still a fairly standard 50-50 type split? No, it's um, the way that we set it up on Fantasy Score is everybody that beats their expert gets cash, and, and everybody who doesn't, doesn't. And um, so we, fi- we set the bar, and sometimes there are a whole lot of people that get paid, <laughs> and sometimes we're able to, to finish high up in there and, uh, and not cost our employers a whole bunch of money. So they're happy, but the thing is, I think it's a win-win for everybody because even if we do lose to a lot of people, and it gets the interest there to where, hey, you know, I had a pretty good time, you know, pretty good opportunity here, uh, put in a good lineup, maybe I'll play again, and that's really the whole thing that that we like to do is, is foster a sense of community where you see some of the same people playing again, and it adds a little bit of that rivalry that you don't get as much in daily fantasy that you do in season long when you get in leagues with people you've been in, especially you've been in a long time. I can just see them sitting there going, when's Gardner going to be the expert again? That's when I'm getting in. <laughs> 
Yeah, I don't want any part of that Bloomfield guy, but uh, yeah, tell me when Steve's up again. Uh, In your column at USA Today recently, uh, you announced that you were putting together your all-keeper teams for the two leagues in 2016, and you've done the American League. But before we get to specific players, when you're looking at top keepers, obviously the main consideration is how much value is there versus what salary are you paying. But what else are you looking at, especially in a column like this where you can't know what the salary is for any particular player in any particular league context. Yeah, I look at it to where guys generally have been drafted or what their auction value is. And uh, you know, some guys are dogs that uh, haven't, uh, haven't done very well and, and don't uh, live up to their value. But I look for those guys that are underpriced. Um, think of guys that maybe were waiver wire pickups during the season or dollar players at the end of an AL or NL only draft or, or even a mixed league draft. You know, those types of players are the ones that I look for and, and who have overachieved. That's one part of value. The other thing is the guys that may have been, uh, you know, pushed down, regular guys, uh, you know, that, that play every day and, and put up decent stats, but for some reason or another, the market undervalues them. And I, I think of a guy like Nelson Cruz, to just throw out an example, who people thought, you know, free agent going to Seattle. We saw what happened to Robinson Cano. He, his power dropped off. Probably same thing will happen to Nelson Cruz. It didn't happen. And so Nelson Cruz was a huge value. And if you got Nelson Cruz for a discount this year, then I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be one of those kind of anchor guys. You not only have to get discount guys, um, it's great to get a $10 value in a $1 player, but you can't keep seven $1 players and have a competitive team. You also need guys who are going to put up stats. And I think that's what the column tried to balance is, the, the, yes, the discount players, but also the guys who are maybe a little bit undervalued who performed really, really well. Your list includes two players who were sidelined by injury this year. A second baseman, Devin Travis of Toronto, missed a good chunk of the season and is going to miss some more, it looks like. And starting pitcher, Hugh Darvish of Texas, of course, uh, Tommy John, done for the season. Uh, well, let's start with Travis. Why him? At the beginning of the year, first month of the season, for instance, he hit three twenty-five had six home runs, 19 RBIs, and was one of the leaders in, in all of those categories, and probably the best second baseman in baseball for the first month of the season. Granted, he's not going to be able to keep that up, but nobody really expected him to, to be that good, certainly, but it was a question as to whether he would actually be the starter when the Blue Jays opened the season. So if you're drafting in March, and Devin Travis is one of those throw-in kind of guys, and we see what kind of talent he has, what kind of ability he has, and also in that Blue Jays lineup where everybody is, is a, a great hitter and, and it rises everybody's value, um, I think Travis, with an off-season to heal, to come back uh, fully um, healthy, his shoulder 100%, I think Travis is a great keeper if you have him now to be able to plug him in as your starting second baseman and uh, whatever you paid for him this year has got to be close to peanut. Now when we look at Darvish, of course, the, the pedigree is obvious, the strikeouts are great, but how much discount should the owner be planning on for Darvish based on his surgery? It was one of those cases. I think the, the official word on Darvish happened a couple of weeks at least before um, before opening day, to where the point where it, it, we were drafting, we knew. I, I know in, in AL Labor even, um, he went for $3 or something like that, and uh, it, it wasn't a, a, a large amount by any means. 
and that was even with a little bit of uncertainty whether he might return or not. So I think for the most part, if, if you drafted closer to the beginning of the season, you knew he was out for the season, and you maybe had a few dollars in your, uh, in your bank account left to throw at him, it makes it, I, I really like doing that, Patrick, in, in uh, keeper leagues, to have a guy that maybe is, is injury-plagued or uh, may not be back until midseason or even next season, to get a guy like that. You may not even carry him over for the entire season, but when you get to the trading deadline, a guy like that, you know, a U Darvish for $3 for next season, and I had this in my AL Keeper League that uh, is one of my home leagues, I had Darvish. I wanted to make a run at the, uh, you know, at, at the championship for this year in my AL-only keeper league. And so Darvish was a fantastic trade chip for me to trade to some owner for next year who was trying to build already and, and was out of it for this season. You also recommended a keeper closer, and it's probably not whom people think. Uh, who was your keeper closer and why? Well, I think Andrew Miller is a guy that um, was probably underpriced on draft day this year because a lot of people thought Dylan Batonsis would be the closer for the Yankees. And although they didn't really make a decision until close to opening day, uh, Miller's price was so low that people that drafted him got a huge value when he actually took over the job and has kept it all season. And I think he's proven the fact that uh, he's been able to, to close games out an ERA below two and, and be so effective um, seems to me like Andrew Miller is the one guy in the American League who you got at a discount this season, who has been great, and who should continue to be great next season. What about in Toronto, the uh, Osuna kid from Mexico? He's only 20. Uh, I know a lot of people did not put fairly substantial fab bids on him when they had the chance because nobody could believe that a 20-year-old kid thrown into the uh, heat of a pennant race could perform, but perform he has. Yes, he, he has been great, and I, I guess if I had room for a second guy, he would certainly be uh, one of the candidates for that spot. The, the only thing, though, is, yeah, he is 20 years old. How will he handle that job? You know, closers burn out pretty quickly. You don't have you know, a whole lot of shelf life. There are very few Mariano Rivera's and Craig Kimbrell's, and so uh, there's a question of how long he might be able to stay in that closer's role. Will Toronto want to keep him in that closer's role? A um, lot, of, lot of questions, but so far he's been great and uh, hasn't really had a whole lot of, uh, of failure to taste, and, and that's great, but it's also, as a closer, how you deal with that and how you bounce back from it that, uh, that shows what kind of uh, makeup you have and, and how long you might keep that job. But of course, I live up here in Ontario. We see an awful lot of Blue Jays games, and the kid seems to have ice water in his veins when he's on the mound. He seems to... Uh, treat triumph and disaster both the same in the immortal words of Rudyard Kipling. And, and uh, you know, his demeanor reminds me a lot of Mariano Rivera. It's like he's just got this dead-eye, gunslinger sort of look that I don't care what you do because I'm going to keep doing this. I, I like Roberto Asuna a lot. You're uh, recommending, and this surprised me a little bit, a keeper who's a, a DH only. Uh, which player is that, and why would you recommend keeping somebody who clogs that slot right away? Yeah, and it is it is odd because especially in an AL only league, the the DH spot, people have have downgraded David Ortiz, even though for the most part he's been very consistent throughout his career, because you throw that DH only player and it clogs that spot up and you lose roster flexibility on draft day. Um, I think the the reason why I recommend Miguel Sano as a keeper. And, and one of the better ones in all of uh, on the American League, 
is because you look at the number of guys that are going to be DH only next season. It's a long list. I mean, not only is it David Ortiz, but Evan Gaddis, Alex Rodriguez, Kendrys Morales. I mean, these are guys that have been very productive this season. Um, Victor Martinez is another one. Prince Fielder uh, may not get the 20 games that's generally required for eligibility at first base and may be DH only. Um, and uh, also, uh, Evan Gaddis is another guy. You know, he's played some in the outfield, but I think 11 or 12 games, something like that, he may not get to 20. So he'll be DH only. You add in, you know, Jimmy Paredes and Billy Butler and some of the other guys, that DH only crop next year in AL only leagues is going to be really big. And I think Miguel Sano is one worth keeping, not only because he's shown great power this season in the time that he's been in the majors, but also I think the Twins brought him up and plugged him in at that DH spot so he didn't have to worry about anything except hitting. I think next year they're going to want him to play a bigger role. I think they're going to want him to play the field more, and he'll get out of that DH-only qualification um, maybe as fast as anybody else in, in the game. Your Twitter feed also mentioned uh, a weird but interesting stat about Miguel Sano and Byron Buxton of the Twins that they were 6-0 and as of the Tuesday night. I think that you uh, released the column or shortly thereafter. They're now, I think, 8-2 and uh, with both of those young stars in the lineup. Should we be making anything out of this as far as the Twins' plans for next year, especially with regards to Buxton? Yeah, I think, um, I think this is a team that has probably one of the better farm systems in all of Major League Baseball. And to be able to, you know, we talk a lot about how the Cubs have, have seen their young players come to the majors and make a difference this year and make them a playoff team. We've seen the Astros, you know, Carlos Correa comes up, um, and Vincent Velasquez and Lance McCullers and, and guys like that come up and actually be uh, an important part of a playoff caliber team. I think the Twins are maybe just a little bit behind that wave because They've got a number of outstanding young players in their system that are just now bubbling to the surface, and we didn't see Sano until uh, until July. We didn't see Buxton until you know then, and then he had the injury and went down to the minor leagues again. I, I think it shows that the Twins are kind of committed to um, a, a younger team, a more athletic team, and it could be along with the Astros, you know, a, a real force in that AL Central for for many years to come. I was a little concerned about Buxton when they first uh, ended his DL stint. They sent him straight to AAA, and he only got recalled because of an injury. And uh, frankly, he's still not playing that well from a fantasy point of view in their lineup. How really confident are you that uh, Buxton finds a role right from the right from the jump in 2016? Well, you know what's interesting in that regard is that a lot of people were penciling him into their 200 uh, 2016 lineup in center field. And forgetting about Aaron Hicks, who's actually had a great second half and uh, a little injury of his own kind of derailed that. But Aaron Hicks is a, a very good player, has turned into at least the second half of this year. So it may not be an automatic spot for Buxton in the lineup. Um, I think he still has to prove that he can hit major league pitching. You mentioned when he was sent down after the injury, he dominated at AAA. So I think that's one of those cases where he just needs to play get acclimated to the major leagues and, and the speed of the game and, and adjustments that he has to make, I think he's going to be a fantastic player. He's just not showing it right now uh, down the stretch. And, and uh, as I was talking about the you know, guys that were shuffling in and out of our lineups in the, uh, the FSTA league, he's one of those guys that 
uh, I drafted on draft day as one of the last round picks because of the immense talent that he has, and I've kept him on the roster all year, and uh, I'm still waiting for that to pay off, and I'm not really sure if that's going to actually happen this year. Yeah, I'm not either. A lot of strikeouts, and the the Twins, I think, still harbor some thoughts that they might make the playoffs, and if that's the case, you just can't afford to carry a guy so that he can learn the game at his own pace and so forth. Now, uh, Steve, the uh, story you did in USA Today, uh, usatoday.com, was the American League only. I assume there's a National League version coming. Is it up, or when will it be up? It will be up next week. Um, Sports Weekly comes out on Wednesday, and we generally post my column a day early for folks who like to uh, feel in the know and go online on Tuesday. So uh, Tuesday morning, right around uh, maybe right around lunchtime on Tuesday, we'll have the National League All-Keeper team, which I'm still working on, but uh, we may give a few hints, Patrick, later on in our, in our discussion as to some of the guys that will be on there. I was going to ask you to give us a little sneak preview, but I'll hold off on that. Uh, you also had a column, Steve, in USA Today about how to manage a fantasy team in September. And let's get something out of the way right off the bat. Is this only about chasing a pennant or a money slot? It is for the most part. Um, I, I think in September, for the uh, you know for most owners, you're pretty much on autopilot, and there's not a whole lot you can do. Yeah, you know, as I was saying earlier, you can shuffle, you know, pitchers in and out of your lineup. You can stream th- you stream pitchers and and that sort of thing. But as rosters expand and playing time goes down, players are getting rested more. It's really more difficult, I think, to manage your roster in September. So for people, you know, like like Ron and and like I am going down the stretch. You try and do every little thing you can, and um, so yeah, it's it's mostly geared toward the people who are still paying attention to baseball in September, as opposed to that other sport that's going on. <laughs> right, uh, and you mentioned some of what you're thinking about a, a little earlier. Anything else uh, you want to add by way of tips for people who are chasing some money or chasing the uh, pennant in their fantasy leagues? Well, I think one of the things that it's um, it's kind of a a hidden thing if you're in a rotisserie league where you have categories and everything. Um, one of the things that, that I've tried to do going into September is to protect ratios, your batting average, ERA, whip. If you get solid bases in those, it makes it a lot easier to chase the counting categories down the stretch. And a lot of times you see uh, leading up to league trade deadlines and things like that, Saves and steals are the primary things that are traded because they're easy to count. You know pretty much who's going to get those. And for teams that are kind of out of the race and aren't really actively managing their rosters, those counting categories are the ones that you can pass those guys in the easiest. So if your ratios are are solid, um, that's one of those things that if, if guys are not paying attention to their rosters, their ratios, their ERA, their WHIP, um, and batting averages, those tend to stay pretty much in the same area. It makes it a little bit more difficult to try and top pass somebody in batting average or to lower your WHIP below somebody who's just kind of cruising along and not really paying uh, that much attention. So look at those categories that are particularly volatile, the saves, the steals, run scored, uh, RBIs, and, and look to make the you know make your move in those categories in uh, as you stream pitchers or or move guys in and out of your lineup. 
I think that's very sound advice. I'll throw something else in about it, and that is if you're looking at where you stand in especially ERA and ratio in regards to other guys in the category and you're trying to determine if they can catch you or if you can catch them, it really behooves you to take a look at how many innings they have because somebody who's got thirteen or 1,400 innings is going to move very little, and somebody who's got, if you're in a league that allows you know a 900-inning minimum or no minimum and they've got 850 innings, they have a, the potential to move a lot more than somebody who's got, uh, you know, 50% more innings than that. And at the same time, look at how many innings you have and be realistic. I'm in Tell Wars. I'm locked in, in ERA and WHIP because my innings pitch count is around 1,300. I chased uh, strikeouts this year and had a nine-starter uh, lineup. I'm very sure I'm not going to move very much in ERA and WHIP because the denominator is simply too large. And the other thing, too, Patrick, we have in NL Labor, we have one owner who's probably not going to make the minimum innings limit requirement. And if that happens, make sure you know how your league rules handle things, because in our rules for labor, that person gets a one, you know, gets the last number uh, in every category that is a ratio if they don't reach the the innings pitch minimum. So they'd get a one in ERA and a one in WHIP. Right now, he's sitting in the bottom in both of those categories anyway, but um, if it were, you know, if he were higher up, then that could certainly impact the way the final standings are going to be because they don't reflect that right now. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of leagues play it that the guy drops down to one or zero and everybody else moves up who was below him. And so if you have a guy like that who's between you and somebody that you're either worried about or that you're chasing, you can pick up a point. Most of the leagues I play in, the uh, standard rule in rotisserie is that the owner who doesn't make the minimum gets zero and everybody else stays put. So if he was at the seven-point mark, there just would be no seven-point guy awarded. But as you say, know your league rules, find out. I, I think there are some leagues also, Steve, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, but they'd say the extra innings are made up by assigning him enough innings to make his minimum at some kind of really inflated ERA and whip, like a two whip and a six ERA, and they just give you the innings that account for that and then adjust the standings accordingly. So it's important to know the rules. Indeed, indeed. That's an interesting way to handle it, too, actually. It, it is an interesting way. I've also seen a league, I never played in it, where they took the worst guy and just gave you that caliber of innings to make, up you, to make you up to the minimum. There are lots of ways to handle it, know what they're doing. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Steve Gardner from USA Today. And uh, Steve, you do a regular chat at USA Today Online. It's a real interesting chat, and uh, it runs very... Um, in depth, you, you're not uh, one of these guys who tosses off a two-word answer because uh, people want more than that, and you're certainly delivering it. And uh, I noticed at uh, a chat recently that you said you think Tom Wilhelmson in Seattle might retain the closer job next year, and that surprised me. I look at him, I see he's going to go in age 32 next year. This year, his ERA is over three and a half. His WHIP is almost one and a half, and they have a much better option in Carson Smith. So, what are you seeing in Wilhelmson that I'm not? Well, it, it's not necessarily in Wilhelmson and, and Carson Smith. I think the real key to that and, and who closes in Seattle next year is, number one, who's making the decision. You know, Lloyd McClendon is a very uh, old-school kind of guy. The, uh, the Mariners also have a vacancy for their GM spot and will need to fill that with someone, whether it'll be somebody who's maybe more sabermetric-friendly then chances are we might see Carson Smith in there. 
but um, I, I think a lot of times you look at managers and the way that they manage determines how maybe progressive they are in promoting people to, uh, to the closer role as one of them, or they stick with the veteran. So in this case, I think the point that I was making um, in regard to that question was probably, yes, I think uh, Carson Smith may not be the, uh, or may be the better choice, but the way that Lloyd McClendon manages, chances are he's going to stick with Tom Wilhelmson the rest of the way and could even go ahead and say, hey, you've done the job before, why don't you start with the closer's job to start 2016? Having said that, though, starting the job, starting the season with the job is a far cry from uh, from holding it, especially for a pitcher with Will Helmson's kind of skills. So it would be a cautionary note, maybe a really good guy to trade in the offseason if it looks like Will Helmson uh, in spring training might, uh, might hold on to the job at the start of the year. It would be a great time to trade him because he's not going to keep it, I don't think. Certainly, and as, as Ron Chandler has, has preached for so long, you know, you draft skills and not roles, especially in the closer position, because as we've seen time and time again, you know, that position is very volatile and it can change at in, in a moment's notice. This is not really directly germane to fantasy baseball in the near term, Steve, but as you look around how the game is being played, you mentioned that there's been more and more influence in front offices and even uh, on the field with uh, sabermetrics and advanced analysis and more and more tools being brought to bear in uh, in uh, the sport and at the team level. Do you think we're any closer to seeing somebody who manages their bullpen more intelligently than saying, you're my closer, you're my eighth inning guy, and looks more instead at leverage situations and best pitcher for toughest situations? Yeah, I was hopeful that um, that the Oakland A's were going to do that a little bit last year. They had sort of a closer situation. Every time, seems like every time it's been tried, it hasn't really worked out, and, and managers aren't going to stick with it. You know, whenever you do something radical like that, um, it needs to work from day one and work really well for people to uh, to embrace it. And every so often, you'll get a few uh, bumps in the road, and and uh, it it doesn't work out. And I think we may be we may be closer. I think we are. Um, but every time I say that, I see you know a Matt Williams situation where you know, he doesn't bring in Drew Storen to face the one, two, and three hitters for the Cardinals in the seventh inning and saves him for the eighth inning when, you know, the guy that comes in blows the lead or, you know, doesn't bring in. I, I, I think the first step is managers bringing in closers in a tie game. I think, I, I think even the old school, we might be able to, and I'd say we as sabermetrically friendly people, might be able to persuade managers that that's a good thing to do, that you want your best pitchers, if the game is going to go into extra innings, you want to have your best pitchers pitching earlier. You know, your succession should be best pitcher, next best pitcher in the 10th, next best pitcher in the 11th, if you're not going to have a guy go two innings, and save whoever, you know, if you get three runs in the top of the 12th, pretty much anybody in your bullpen should be able to protect the three-run lead in one inning. I think that's probably the first frontier. Once we cross that, we might be able to start getting managers to think a little bit more about having a you know the traditional fireman from the uh, from the 1970s who comes in and puts out the fire in the seventh inning and uh, lets things you know uh, lets all the smoke clear and and the rest of the people mop up afterwards after after the game's well in hand. 
I, w- I wonder if the Yankees might be a, a, ca- a contender in this regard, too, because I think you could make an argument that Dellen Batances, whom you mentioned earlier, is actually a better relief pitcher than Andrew Miller is. He's more dominant, you know, he's, he's uh, more capable of going four or five outs, certainly, and they've used him in, in that way. And Joe Girardi seems to have looked at the situation and 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 said, I want Batances in there when the going gets tough, and then Miller's a good enough pitcher, certainly a fine pitcher, but I'll, I'll use him in that more traditional closer role, and I'll stretch out Batances to get more outs, throw more pitches, and so on. That seems to be uh, at least somewhat of a departure from you pitch the seventh, you pitch the eighth, you pitch the ninth. Yeah, I think so. And the fact that you know Miller was in that role last year when he was with the Orioles down the stretch as the guy who would pitch multiple innings. So the the flexibility of those guys, and and you're right, I, I think the Yankees could possibly end up, and, and they've flip-flopped a little bit. You know, Batances has gotten some save opportunities when Miller has been out or rested or, or something like that. So especially with those guys, you know, one being right-handed, one being left-handed, that could be a really effective duo if Joe Girardi kind of takes that to the next level and does a little bit more matching up if, if both of those guys uh, you know, understand what he's trying to do and know that it will make the Yankees a more effective team and a, and a better bullpen overall if he can do that. I'm waiting for somebody to realize, uh, and I think Earl Weaver used to talk about this a lot, that you're, you'd probably be way better off with a bullpen that had... Uh, fewer pitchers in it throwing more innings so that you could get rid of the marginal guys at the very end of the bullpen who are kind of just those awful mop-up guys who only come in when they're up or down six runs because it would give teams more pinch hitters and more position players to maneuver on the bench which arguably is more important in matching up especially late in games if you're the first team in baseball to go in there with instead of the the 12 position players, 13 pitchers kind of model and go, you know, 14 or 15 position players and only 10 or 11 pitchers, including four or five in the bullpen instead of seven or eight. I think you could have a real tactical advantage in a lot of games until, of course, everybody started doing it as well. Right. And the thing, too, is that you you really don't see pitchers going more than an inning. And it's, it's strange because, you know, once a guy moves into that closer role, you know, he can't pitch two innings, but if he were in a setup role, he might pitch two. You know, or if he were uh, brought in earlier in the game, he might pitch two and a half or two and a third or something like that. So it's um, it's interesting how the mindset has has evolved for uh, for managers in their usage of the bullpen. And I I agree with you 100. percent I've seen a lot of times where teams have come down into the late innings and really could have used a pinch hitter and had nobody on the bench because. You've got four or five relievers out there just uh, gathering dust in the bullpen that you're not going to use. <laughs> gathering dust, yeah, that's a good way. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. And uh, the the absurdity of it seems to me when I look at it is it's like they stack rank their bullpen pitchers and they say, okay, he's my best bullpen pitcher. I'm only going to pitch him in the ninth and 60 innings a year. And then I'm going to go down five slots to a guy who's, you know, statistically and, and bare naked eye much worse than that guy. And him, I'm going to pitch 90 innings a year. Exactly. And, and I think that's where the frustration, especially, you know, during the nationals collapse here in the, in the second half, a lot of the, uh, the focus has been at least from the, the local media has been on the fact that Jonathan Papelbon was, you know, their one 
trade deadline acquisition to try and make a push for the uh, the division title and make the playoffs. And he's sitting there and he's he's pitching one or two innings a week maximum. And you know to to give up anything to get that guy to have him at the back of your bullpen and have Matt Williams say, "Well, I didn't bring him in in a tie game because I need him to close it out." You know when. There's not going to be a tenth inning when you put in your fifth best pitcher in, in the ninth inning of a tie game and allow the game winning run. And, and that has happened indeed a lot. Uh, a couple of chat participants in the transcript that I read asked you about Joe Kelly of the Red Sox, who was a hot mess for the Lions' share of the year, but has looked quite a bit better of late. You're quite optimistic about Joe Kelly. Yeah, I am. Um, the the fact that uh, that he does have you know the velocity and and maybe I'm a sucker for guys that that have. You know that that hard fastball and and guys who have the the raw stuff that they're just a, a a tweak away from from finding their groove and and Kelly has certainly done that over the second half of the season. Um, I think he was is uh, one like his last six decisions or last six times out even and uh, ERA around around two and a half somewhere in there. He's still walking a few guys and and giving up a decent amount of hits, but you know the strikeouts are there. Strikeout rate has gone up a little bit. And, and, yeah, he's getting some run support, too, as the Red Sox offense has come along. But, you know, one of those guys, I, I think the point there, too, is the fact that Kelly is a guy who's readily available or has been readily available in a lot of leagues. And to find a guy who's having success and is doing a pretty good job of, uh, of helping you in all categories on the waiver wire in a lot of leagues, I think is a guy that you definitely have to, uh, to throw some support behind and, and try and get if you can. Having said all that, before you make a, a decision to maybe target Joe Kelly next year, and if, if you can get him for a dollar or two at the end of the draft, that's fine. But before you look at the uh, August good performance, I think his ERA is well under three. Uh, his whip is still fr- fairly high. But uh, take a look at his underlying stats before you make any kind of concrete decision to invest heavily in Joe Kelly. I think the ERA is a bit of a mirage in August. He's He's been lucky rather than good. I'll, I'll just say that and leave it there. Several questions in the chat arose about streaming position players for a particular week. And you came back to this theme again and again, you have to look at how many games are going to be played in the week, which seems pretty obvious. But you also cautioned that you might have players with a games played edge, but had a disadvantage because the games, the extra games that they were playing were against much tougher opposition. How do you calibrate those two competing factors when you're making these start or sit roster decisions? Yeah, that it is a very fine line. And the fact, I, I look, and I think this is one way where daily fantasy has helped us in season-long fantasy is that we're looking at matchups now a lot closer than maybe we have in the past. So you look at somebody like um, uh, Mike Moustakis, for instance, you know, who doesn't hit lefties as well as he, as he hits righties, and you see that the Royals are facing the White Sox, and they have their string of lefties in Sale and Rodon and, and, and those guys in uh, uh, Quintana, you know, guys like that, and you say, well, wait a minute, he may play seven games this week, but if he's going to play against those lefties, maybe that's not, you know, the potential there for a big week is not as great as if I have somebody else who may be only playing six games and has, you know, uh, all opposite-handed pitchers that he's facing. So it's one of those difficult things, but I do think that uh, we're more conditioned now to look at individual matchups and to see which players hit better against left-handers or right-handers or, or 
who is is dominant in in those tip, those types of situations. Some people in the chat, Steve, asked about Carlos Correa and George Springer of the Astros, particularly focusing on the potential for Houston to sit those star guys more often because they have their playoff spot pretty much sewn up, although there's still some home field advantage issues that might pop up. They want to try to keep Carlos Correa fresh and George Springer healthy and give them some rest to get ready for the playoffs. I refuse to call it the postseason. It's the playoffs. How critical is that factor, and how can owners get a feel for how teams might handle a situation with star players as they approach what they expect will be a playoff run? Yeah, I think, again, the ability to look back at at daily lineups over the span of a week and to be able to see which teams may may rest a lot of their key players, give them an extra day off, things like that. I think that's a uh, a, a really good thing to be able to do, and something that we're doing more of. Um, in the case of those two players, you know, Correa coming back from an injury, sat out a couple of games, came back, looked really good, um, and Springer will be coming back into the lineup uh, probably this coming week. Um, I would expect Houston, especially with a you know a somewhat of a comfortable lead, and and uh, a lot of the teams, you know, especially in the AL, it's kind of stratifying now. But um, to, to be able to go ahead and, and give those guys a couple of days off, maybe you know, an off day, that, that's one of the keys. If you have an off day, look for guys to maybe rest on either side of that, you know, one or the other. The, the two days to let the body heal and recover I think is huge for, for players at this point of the season just because you, know, you get into the, the dog days of summer and, uh, and every day that you can rest is, is even more important. So... That's kind of what I would look for, and, and obviously as we've gotten conditioned to looking at the daily lineups and when they're posted on Mondays, especially um, if they're all night games, you can see who's starting for each team and maybe notice if one of those guys is sitting out for this week and, and maybe if you want to start somebody else in their place because they might get another uh, day off uh, later on in the week. Conversely, Steve, teams that are out of the race have very little incentive to run their top players, especially pitchers out there. So what about the risk that the also-ran clubs are sitting their stars to protect them for next year and to get a better look at some of their call-ups? Yeah, that's always, a, that's always an issue. And sometimes, too, though, they, they put them out there because they want to get people to come to the ballpark. So it, it, it can work both ways. But, yeah, I, I think um, that's, that's one of the opportunities that you have for – I think of a guy like Domingo Santana in Milwaukee, you know, a guy who's, who's got some potential, had a very good season in the minor leagues. Um, they're giving him a look in center field in Milwaukee and, and letting him play there, even though he's probably not, um, not a center fielder, probably better suited for the got Chris Davis on one side and Ryan Braun on the other. I think this is one of those occasions where the Brewers are probably going to give Santana a good amount of time out there, and, and fantasy owners who are looking for counting stats down the stretch, you know, might be able to, to mine uh, teams like the Brewers and get some of those guys into their lineups that may be more productive than, say, somebody who has probably been in the lineup all season, you know, a guy like Hanley Ramirez, for instance, who's not getting a whole lot of playing time now. Yeah, yeah. you don't have to tell me about that. I've got Hanley Ramirez uh, on one of my rosters, and I'm not expecting a whole bunch. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Steve Gardner from USA Today and usatoday.com. And Steve, uh, who's your top pleasant surprises this season among position players? 
You know, there are a handful of them. Um, I, I think first, to start with some of the younger guys, uh, I think we didn't know a whole lot about Jung Ho Gong and when he came over from Korea, but he's been a pleasant surprise being able to hit, you know, for power and play third base and shortstop for Pittsburgh. Um, DJ LeMayhew is another guy that kind of had a breakout season, an all-star this year for the first time, and uh, we knew about his glove. He was a gold glover uh, last year, but the offense, uh, we didn't expect, I think, to come along as well as it has. Um, and then, you know, Patrick, I have to say from an offensive standpoint, I had no clue that Mark Teixeira and Alex Rodriguez would have the kinds of seasons that they've had this year. Even though they're both kind of slowing down here toward the end, fantasy owners certainly didn't pay very much for them at the beginning of the season and uh, were definitely rewarded, especially in the power. And Steve, what about pitchers? Carlos Martinez, we didn't know if he was going to have a, a rotation spot in St. Louis. It went down you know, toward the end of spring training before we knew he'd be the number five guy. And he's had a fantastic season. I don't think we expected Noah Syndergaard to be as good as he's been um, and be in the majors as quickly and, and have that kind of success. And also, I think the Brewers, Jimmy Nelson and Taylor Youngman, um, have come along and been much better and progressed much quicker than I thought we uh, maybe we thought we'd see from them. And uh, and those guys would be some of the surprises as well. Uh, unfortunately, you know, for AL only owners. All, all four of those guys are, are national leaguers. Um, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe maybe Dallas Keuchel was good last year and there was some skepticism as whether he'd continue to be good. Um, I think he's certainly uh, proven all those doubters wrong. Uh, very quickly, who are your fantasy most valuable players, Cy Young and Rookie of the Year? In terms of value for price paid, I think the MVP for this year in fantasy from a hitting standpoint is A.J. Pollock, who's been one of the absolute best players in terms of overall production and was probably maybe a top 20 um, outfielder at the beginning of the year uh, from very optimistic, you know, even being optimistic. Cy Young, I'd have to say Zach Granke is, has been the best pitcher so far. Um, but if you're looking for value and what we expected from them before the season, Dallas Keuchel would have to be uh, the AL guy and maybe Jake Arrieta from the NL. Rookie of the year, Carlos Correa? Yeah, Carlos Correa, AL, and Chris Bryant in the NL. But I will say that Matt Duffy has been a huge value and, and a rookie that's come out of nowhere that fantasy owners who've uh, had him on their team certainly have loved his production. Steve, if we were to have a 2016 mixed league fantasy draft tomorrow, say, and we gave you first pick, who are you taking? I'm still taking Mike Trout. Um, I, I think he's he's young and can contribute in all categories. And if if anything, you know, maybe this little slump that he's had for like the past month or so might drop his value down a little bit to where people kind of have a little Mike Trout fatigue from the last couple of years, but he's still he's still the best player in baseball, hands down in my mind. You're not concerned about the steady decline in stolen bases to the point where it doesn't even seem to be that much of a strength? Uh, I don't think so. I, I think because he can he can still run. He still gets he, he probably will still be the leading run scorer in all of baseball next year. And I think the power is going to stay there. The RBIs are going to stay there, and the average is still going to stay there. I, I still think he's he's the best player in baseball. And and because the out you know the outfield I think is getting a lot shallower than it's ever been. 
and you can't get the kind of value that you can at, say, you know, first base. I think first base is loaded, and uh, Paul Goldschmidt would certainly be in the conversation, but, um, but I think I'd still take Mike Trout number one. Would you put any pitchers at all in a, fir- in a first round of 15 picks? I would. Um, I would put Clayton Kershaw in there, and I, I might even put Clayton Kershaw at number three after Goldschmidt and Trout. I mean, he's just so dominant, and uh, I think people were worried a little bit with the, um, you know, his, his uh, stats weren't great at the beginning of the season, and he wasn't winning all the time. But um, he, as we've seen lately, Kershaw is Kershaw. He's fantastic. And I'll throw this as an aside. I have a little little running bet with uh, with some other folks that I, that I talk to on a regular basis who say, you know, he hasn't succeeded in the playoffs, you know, and I'm worried about the, the Dodgers' chances because Kershaw can't win in the playoffs. I think that's bogus, and, and I really think he's the best pitcher in baseball, hands down. And uh, if he gets another chance in the playoffs this year, mark it down, Kershaw will be the ace we've seen during the regular season. If I wanted to have Clayton Kershaw next year, I hope he stinks the joint out in the playoffs so that everybody's mad at him and that's what they remember, right? Recency bias can be your friend. If he, you know, if he if he lays an egg in in a game 7 or a game 5 in that first go round and, you know, gives up six earned runs in 3 innings or something, that's the last memory a lot of people are going to have and they're going to say that proves that he's not a good pitcher and no, that proves he can have a bad start. The guy's on target for 300 strikeouts this year. Just think of the impact that has on that category. It, it seems really obvious that Clayton Kershaw, 218 ERA so far, a whip way under one at this point. Boy, oh boy, it's it's hard not to think about him at least as a first round guy. And he throws so many innings that those ratios, you know, help you even more in terms of a, of a rotisserie league. And the fact that he really hasn't had any injury issues throughout his career. I mean, there were, there were some that kept him out at the beginning of last year, but other than that, you look at the uh, innings pitched, and he's just as consistent as a metronome. And by the way, uh, a 14% home run per a 16% sorry home run per fly ball rate this year means that his 218 ERA is probably a little higher than it really should be because ordinarily that's around 10% and you have to expect it'll regress to something more like that or even lower. The last four or five years have been way under 10% in that regard. He's a very high ground ball pitcher. He's a very, very high strikeout pitcher. Boy, I love Clayton Kershaw a lot. I get priced out every year, but maybe one of these years I'll change my mind. Is, Is there any player you think that you would put in the first round next year that might surprise fantasy owners? I'll tell you, Patrick, I think Carlos Correa could be a first-round pick next year. And uh, I know we've only seen a half-season's worth uh, of him in action, but he does so many things well. I mean, he's a lot like Mike Trout in that regard. And the fact that he plays at a position where there really aren't a lot of great shortstops. I mean, we put a lot of trust in, in Troy Tulowitzki this year. We put a lot of trust in Ian Desmond. You know, he was a, a first, borderline first, second round pick, and, and both of those guys have underachieved. Uh, over the, the course of the second half, Correa has been the most valuable fantasy shortstop, and I can certainly see that continuing. I mean, he's succeeded in every level, and he's in a great hitter's park. I think he could be a first-round pick next year, somewhere in the in the back of that first round. And you're not the first person on the show to suggest that either. Uh, how about uh, the same question, Steve, but which player would you leave out of the first round that might surprise owners? 
Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to put together my uh, my top fifteen or twenty rankings for next year, and that'll be in one of those Sports Weekly columns here before too long. I- I'm finding a hard time putting Miguel Cabrera in that top uh, echelon, and I-, I know that the uh, you know when he's been in the lineup this year, he's still been the Miguel Cabrera that we've uh, you know come to know and love. But the Tigers are getting older as a whole offensively, and Cabrera himself is, is showing some signs of where I, I think we could see another injury-plagued or, or at least injury-shortened season for Cabrera next year. Um, he's great, obviously, and, and all of that, but I, I think I'd like to go with more stable, younger skill sets uh, for guys that I'm going to take in the first round. This long injury uh, this year is, is what really put me uh, down on Miguel Cabrera. By the way, uh, Joe Sheehan last week had Carlos Correa as the surprise in and Miguel Cabrera as the guy out, so you're in, you're in uh, fine company with, with those picks. Uh, before we let you go, Steve, during the season, we always ask our experts to talk about facts and flukes. Um, we're looking for guys who are outliers against expectations, for, for better or worse, and whether it's for real or, or not for real. Let's start in the American League with a hitter. Who do you think is an is a outlier? American League hitter, and is he a factor of fluke? Well, we talked a little bit about Miguel Sano, and, and I, I think right now uh, he's one of those guys that is one of the up-and-coming young stars. I mean, you see not only the power from him, but an excellent batting eye. I mean, you get a lot of guys that come up. Joey Gallo comes to mind where he shows you that 80-grade power but strikes out an awful lot. Sano's got a much better eye at the plate, much better plate discipline. I think that's going to serve him really well in the future. And over in the National League, an outlier hitter, and is he a fact or a fluke? I'm going to go um, an outlier fact here, and that's Kyle Schwarber. And uh, he's one of those guys that will be on the uh, all-keeper team for, uh, for the NL that uh, is in my Sports Weekly column coming up. But um, I-, I love the way that he shows you know, the power, again, plate discipline, and he's not phased by, by the uh, major league pitchers that he's seen. Uh, I remember, I'll tell you a quick story, Patrick. When I was at spring training, I wanted to watch the Cubs because they had so many of those great young players coming up. And the one game that I saw in Arizona, it had not only Chris Bryant, had Addison Russell, Jorge Soler, but Schwarber there. And Schwarber looked, granted it was one game, but Schwarber looked better than any of them at the plate with you know, the way his approach at the plate, and he ended up hitting a grand slam in that game. And uh, from, from then I said, well, you know, maybe this guy could get to the majors a little bit sooner than we thought. Um, I, I didn't follow up on that too much uh, and didn't get him in, in any league or anything like that, but uh, that did stick with me. Seems to have struggled, Kyle Schwarber, against left-handed pitching, like his uh, OPS. I know it's a, a relatively small sample uh, this year, but his OPS is barely half against left-handers what it is against right-handers, against whom he's all-world, by the way, well over a 1,000. Are you concerned at all that he needs to step it up against left-handers? Sure, okay. and, and and with any young player, he's, he's going to go through some growing pains like that, but the fact that he does qualify at catcher and plays catcher, or or will qualify, I think he's maybe a game or two short of, of getting 20 at catcher this season. So once he does that, I, I think you know, with the offensive potential there and the, you know, the raw hitting talent, um, I, I think he's the real deal. Moving over to the mound, uh, how about a pitcher in the American League who has been an outlier performer and is he a factor of fluke? I'll give you another fact here. Um, 
I like Nate Evaldi, and as we talked about Joe Kelly and you know, a guy with the upper 90s velocity, Evaldi has, has topped 100. Um, I think he's maybe the only starting pitcher in baseball this year that, uh, that has more than one pitch above 100 miles per hour. And, and he seems to have refined his, his repertoire to the point where he's able to, to be more effective. I think the one frustrating thing about owning him this season, as I do in AL Labor, is the fact that he gets to the fifth inning just fine, but trying to get past that, um, it seems like there's a huge barrier there. And uh, if he can just get to the point where he, he conserves himself enough and can get past the, you know, that sixth inning and, and go a little bit deeper into games, I think we've got a guy that, uh, that really can be a difference maker. He's already doing that in terms of wins this year for the Yankees. But uh, as we know, you can't really depend on that. I like more the fact that he's got that hard fastball. He's developing his secondary pitches. And he's got a, a ground ball rate that's one of the best in the majors. I think like 56% uh, ground ball rate, which is outstanding. Just so we're clear, uh, Eovaldi has had good skills, but poor results. So uh, a 4.17 ERA, I think his whip is closing in on 150. That part of it, I think you'd say, is a fluke, that he's he's not pitching to his skill. Yeah, and, and he's, uh, I remember last year, too, that was one of the things that, that caused me to draft him, I think, is the fact that you know his expected ERA was was much lower than his actual ERA, and the skills are there, and it just takes... Uh, one of the great things that Baseball HQ does is that one skill away um, analysis, and I think Ivaldi is is one of those guys that that fits that category. And finally, in the National League, a pitcher who has been an outlier performer, and is he a factor of fluke? I'll say you know, Ruby De La Rosa has had a very good second half for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, you know, had uh, I think like six wins and a three three two ERA after the break. But um, I look at things like uh, his, his left-on-base percentage and an 83% strand rate, way high, and the fact that he has such trouble against left-handed hitters that, uh, that he could uh, explode or implode at any moment. Um, he's getting the job done, I think, uh, in the second half as a whole, but, um, but I'm skeptical that he'll be able to keep that up and, uh, and be a guy that you want to rely on next season. Steve Gardner's facts and flukes, Miguel Sano and Kyle Schwarber on the hitting side. Big power is a fact on the pitching side. Nathan Ivaldi, skills are a fact. Results may be a bit fluky and due for improvement in the future. And Ruby De La Rosa, maybe a bit of a fluke on his outcomes. Steve, tell us where listeners can keep up with you and get notification of what you're up to. All right. You can uh, always find the work of not only me, but uh, our other talented writers at uh, fantasy.usatoday.com. And uh, if you want to get some insights uh, on things, uh, my chat every, win- or every Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, um, you can ask me anything, and uh, especially looking for people to, uh, to ask some questions in September, um, get the real diehards there. <laughs> if you want to find me on Twitter, you can always check me out at Steve A. Gardner. And uh, I've got to say, your chat is, uh, there's a lot of them out there, and I've visited quite a few of them, and yours is uh, r- right, up, right up there at the top, because as I said before, sometimes you'll, you'll see these chat transcripts, and somebody will pose a question uh, with you know, a bit of, a bit of uh, context to it, and the, and the chat reply will be, yeah, take Smith. And that's it. And you always justify your answers, which uh, which I really think people appreciate, and uh, I certainly know I do. Uh, Steve, thanks a million for talking with us. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show, and we'll catch up with you again. I like to say later in the season, but now I'll say next season. <laughs> 
thank you, Patrick, and uh, I'll look forward to uh, maybe meeting some people at, uh, at First Pitch Arizona. That's always a fun time, so uh, looking forward to that as well. Steve Gardner is Senior Fantasy Sports Editor at USA Today. We have our regular weekly talk with Todd coming up next, but first let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and why we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business, because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, our Playing Time Today coverage looks at the return of Steven Strasburg, the rehab of Tim Lincecum, a nagging injury to Mike Moustakis, and more. Our Facts and Flukes performance validation looks at Starling Marte's absent power, Freddie Freeman's strong skills, Patrick Corbin's fine form, and much more. And our Buyer's Guide skills assessments include Doug Dennis's 2016 bullpen previews, starting with the East Divisions in the American and National Leagues. We also provide daily matchups reports and a daily fantasy dashboard. There's team coverage and minor league scouting. And, of course, the projections and other roster management tools you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. And now it's time for our final regular weekly talk with Todd. And it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to ESPN, Masters Ball, and Fantasy Alarm. Todd, welcome back to the last edition of Baseball HQ Radio for this year. Wow, last show of the season. It sounds so so ending. Yeah, sounds very final. Yes. And speaking of uh, a final... We've got a, a really weird story to, as we go into the final stretch of the 2015 baseball season, and that is an outbreak of chickenpox in Kansas City. Now, this sounds like a lighthearted thing, but it really has ramifications. Well, not only an adult getting chickenpox a serious thing. I don't want to, yeah, I mean, you know, make light of that. But for the fantasy player, right now, I think the, the, there's only been two names, but there was some concern, Alex Rios and Kelvin Herrera, but there was a concern concern that it could spread and you know this is a team that is looking to get to the world series again so you know they're not going to take any chances and from a fantasy point of view it might give you a johnny gomes to replace an alex rios or something to that effect it might give the fantasy player an opportunity to use a guy for a couple weeks uh jared dyson uh terran i don't think terran score is going to play but he might be more likely to get a stolen base if johnny gomes uh, is in the outfield and he pinch runs for him or something like that. So it could give uh, just another opportunity to find those necessary at-bats to, uh, or necessary counting stats to get you over the hump with about a month left. Yeah, when I saw that news about Rios, I have Gerard Dyson on my reserve and I have uh, Paulo Orlando uh, on a d- team in a different league. And that's the first thing that pops into your mind is, well, maybe this means more playing time for them. But what does it say about how Kansas City feels about such players when they lose a regular like Rios and go out and sign a guy like Gomes? Well, I think they brought Gomes in pre- you know, previous to this, the, the, the old the, the clubhouse character, all that sort of thing. Um, he's been on some pennant winning teams, some playoff bound teams before. So I think they're looking more for the clubhouse aspect with Gomes because at this point is he's just, uh, you know, he can hit lefties really well. I don't want him in the field you know, any least amount of times as possible. And I don't know how much of his power is zapped in Kauffman Stadium because it is a, a big place that, 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 that does sap power. But I think he just was more of a dug, uh, a dugout presence. So I'm not so sure it says a whole lot. Uh, I mean, I, I, Orlando, I think, is just another guy 
the uh, you know Dyson. We know what he can do. Uh, he always gets that three weeks of playing time because someone gets injured and you know he gets 14 steals during that time and everybody gets excited and he gets overdrafted the next year. But if he was any good, you know they wouldn't have gone out and gotten Alex Rios. So I don't know that says a whole lot about Gomes. He's a you know Gomes is a guy to me that I'm going to put him in there in my DFS team if there's a uh, if there's a lefty on. But I'm not running to pick him up. Uh, in a mixed league, in an AL only league, if he's going to get at bats, you know, I'll try to pick him up at the wire if I could. But I don't know that it says too, too much other than fine tuning the playoff roster. Earlier in the show, I was talking with Harold Nichols about uh, some young players coming up, and one of the players that we were talking about had had a uh, a record this season of a, of a good first month in the big leagues, followed by a very poor second one, followed by two pretty good ones. And I suggested to Nick when we were just talking about the that pattern that it looks like he was new to the league and surprised a lot of guys being good. The league adjusted, so he had a bad second month. And then his third month and fourth month were rebound months for him, and maybe that was because he was figuring them out and doing the uh, that thing that people talk about, uh, adapting to the league and, and changing your approach and stuff. And even as I was saying it, and I mentioned it to Nick at the time, it, it, it's a narrative that we're comfortable with, that, that we like to hear about players who adjust to the league and, and then readjust when the league adjusts and so forth. But when I was talking about it, I have no evidence that this is true, and it, it seems like a narrative that has no place. I'm wondering where you, where you fit narratives into your analysis of players and how you combat the idea if you think narratives can be dangerous. Yeah, it, it's especially, you know, we've talked about before, I bridge into the DFS and I think that's where the narrative comes into play more so than the seasonal. Although in seasonal, when you're trying to figure out who to play on you know, the fringe players for the week, you, I think you are looking to that sort of thing and, and making trades and the whatnot. You know, my, my sort of my global feeling is if it's good for the goose, it's good for the gander. And that, you know, I, I'm not going to say this guy's a second half player, but this guy's not. Uh, I'm not going to say that this guy hits better. Uh, you know, on, on Tuesdays and this guy doesn't. If I have a algorithm in my, my spreadsheet, it's applied uniformly to everybody. But, you know, now, now it, I don't know that that's right. The, the longer I do this and, uh, I think there are, you, you have to sometimes override what the, uh, what the Excel spreadsheet tells you what to do. Is the guy coming off an injury? Is, is he, playing more against righties than he is against lefties and I think there's a whole bunch of factors that you do sort of have to to feed in and what you know what you mentioned you know was one of them is, is the rookie but on the other hand uh so say a rookie had you know two really strong months and then he struggled for two months well the narrative here is going to be that he hasn't played a full season yet and he's getting tired and the travel and whatnot is getting to him so I don't know you know I, what we we try to design a narrative Sometimes I think as we design a narrative to fit our preconceived notion of the player, right or wrong, so that we were right or wrong about the player, and so the narrative fits that, so to speak, as well. I don't know for sure. Uh, people are saying Francisco Lindor is is lucky he's not this good because you know they heard he was an all glove no hit guy coming up, and they can't perhaps you know say to themselves, well maybe maybe he actually can hit. So uh, I think sometimes our, our initial bias, our preconceived notion, uh, sort of frames the narrative as well. And I think that's the interesting thing that we have to be aware of is is the 
the idea that we have these preconceived narratives, especially in regards to how we look at things that we're really familiar with, because we've seen them before. And so you have a player who exhibits pattern A and has a future that plays out in some particular way that we tend to take that narrative and impose it on everybody who comes along afterwards who looks somewhat the same. Uh, your example is a, is a good one. We have this narrative that Carlos Correa is a good hitter coming into baseball and that Lindor is not a good hitter when he first comes up to the major leagues. And it it seems like as a result, we're going to be much more forgiving of a, of a slump by Correa and much more critical of one by Lindor when, in fact, it could be that the pattern that we think we see just isn't even there. Yeah, Korea gets three homers in a week, and he's you know going to be a first-rounder next year. Lindor gets three homers in a week, and it was you know some, some home run per fly ball luck, that sort of thing. Uh, we talk, I, I, we met, we've talked offline, and we, I went to a football, uh, DFS football camp, and one of the presentations was by Dr. Renee Miller, who does DFS and some neuroscience? He's uh, into the, the the mind games, if you will. And one of the interesting points she made is about first impressions. I don't want to misquote or misrepresent her presentation, but I think I, I I think I'm comfortable saying one of the primary points was your first impression. Uh, what what a player does in football, what he does in week one, week two, it shapes your opinion of that player for whatever reason because of the adrenaline and the you're paying more attention and you're all psyched about it week one and week two you're so much more into it for whatever your your head your mind now remembers that information and it's used to shape your opinion going forward even if forthcoming weeks and you know you can say with baseball too even if up you know later weeks that uh, weeks gone by that player isn't that same player anymore in your head he still is for whatever reason because of the 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 initial impression. And I think we get a little bit of that too in baseball. A guy that that I like to use as the example. He's not a great player, but uh, Jace Peterson is a guy that came in and played like gangbusters for a couple of months, and people still think he's playing well, but he's not. He hasn't played well for a couple of months now, but they still think he's the leadoff hitter of Atlanta that's stealing twenty bases. And in fact, he's been thrown out as much as he's been caught stealing. So I think uh, it's difficult. Uh, uh, it's, it's one of the, it's a conundrum when we play because, you know, we're numbers people, but yet we're dealing with human beings. So finding that meeting point is a, is a challenge. And at the same time, uh, even at BaseballHQ.com, where we're trying very hard to just be analytical and look at the numbers, as are uh, most other analysts in the, in the sabermetric community and, and, it's still very hard not to look at a at a string of numbers and say this is a trend and it will continue in in this particular fashion, even though there's scant evidence to support that narrative. The, the narrative is if you know if your strikeout per per nine rate is rising, that means you're going to be a better pitcher. And there's a lot of other stuff going on in there, especially in short run samples, that might argue against that. But we feel the pull of that narrative so powerfully. Yeah, I mean, if you string of numbers, you know, eight, nine, and ten, what's the net? You know, and you have to figure out what what the next one's going to be. Is it eleven or is it nine? Is it the average? Is it a weighted average? And sometimes, like you said, if you if you it's, it's you make it almost what you want it to be. If you like the player for whatever reason, if you're a fan of him, if he's a, a rookie that you enjoy, or or whatever reason, I think sometimes we pull that number. Uh, 
to it. You know, if it's eight, nine, ten, we we assume it's going to be eleven. He's going to keep growing. Whereas, you know, weighted average Marcel's system would bring it closer to nine point three or something. Uh, the average. So it it, it is different. You know, and, and I get this conundrum myself, uh, and I'm sure everybody that that does projections does the same thing. Is you know the the person that makes the projections and the person that sits in a draft are two different people. My a draft flow doesn't always necessarily follow my own rankings, and sometimes it's because of a, of, of a subjective opinion I have on a player that you know when if you get my projections you don't want to hear well I thought so and so was going to do better than so and so and this sort of you know you want to know which which numbers are better and see me draft that player but sometimes you have to draft you know projections or ranges so maybe I'm drafting the upside of a player and I think this player for whatever reason has a has a good chance to get that upside so it is interesting and I think the longer I play the more I realize that I have to do this sort of thing because I think there's people out there that, you know, they don't, they don't know how to spell BABIP. They don't know what an SGP is. You know, they don't know what a VLOOKUP is, yet they're kicking my butt in high stakes leagues and in local leagues. You know, why? Well, because they're, uh, they're not married to the numbers. They're, they're making some logical decisions based upon, you know, some, you know, the players and what they think might happen. And maybe I'm too married to what my spreadsheet says. What about the the role you mentioned that this bias we have about the early performance? What about the role of recency bias that we look at what a guy's done in the last couple of weeks, or, or you'll even see a lot of websites saying, you know, he's got three wins and a and a two point five ERA in his last three starts, or similar stuff like that. You'll hear it on TV as well, and yet the 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 human side of us wants to believe in that. But the logical side of us says it's just three games. Anything can happen over twenty innings or whatever. Yeah, I see this on my uh, my ESP. I do the we talked. I do the ESPN daily notes, and we come up with a a modified Bill James game score. And what we'll do is we'll we'll post it, and every day I'll get someone that questions the game score because the pitcher has had a couple of bad outings, and why are we having the game score so high? And the, the my answer always is the uh, the game the, the 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 formula doesn't have recency bias, it doesn't forget it it realizes what's happened over the past couple of years, it's based upon what happens more often than not, and quite frankly more often than not the game score turned out to be correct, and the person questioning it uh, for whatever reason they never come back and say geez you were right, um, they just move on and question the game score the following day. But um, it, yeah, a spreadsheet's an interesting. A spreadsheet. I, we've, we've talked about this too, in our sort of off-air discussions that we tend to have. A spreadsheet's great because it never forgets. On the other hand, it can't reason. It can't interject some of these subjective uh, opinions. You know, what if a, what if a player has been injured? What if a player? Uh, I think there's several instances this year, and I, I'm learning this from DFS where, well, his, his strikeout rate's been low the past month. Well, look at the teams he's been facing. He's faced Kansas City twice, and he faced the Red Sox once, and he faced the Yankees once. Four teams, or well, four games, whose teams strike out well below average. I think you need to, to factor that in to your opinion on the next game. I'm not so sure that the guy's strikeout rate's low. I just think he had a cluster of teams that don't strike out a lot. And uh, I'm sure you can program them into, into a spreadsheet, but that's uh, a lot of work. But um, I think you do need to allow for some uh, 
measure of 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 personal feel, or else to me the game wouldn't be fun either if you didn't uh, if you didn't inject some of your own feelings. When I emailed you to set up this uh, call. Todd, you were talking about having some trouble with your spreadsheets, and uh, I have I have that uh, issue as well. Of course, we all do, and sometimes that it it seems like the spreadsheet is being perverse for whatever reason, and it some in a weird way causes me to think that something I've done in the spreadsheet is not correct, that it's fighting back against my my stupidity in programming it. But in the same way as a narrative of last few weeks or the narrative of he's reacting to the league and the league is reacting to him and all of these other things, we tend to rely on those more than we should. The spreadsheet is only the culmination of a bunch of formulas that we put in it. Does the spreadsheet output become a narrative that we trust too much? I think in my, I think it depends on the person. And I think on my case, I think the answer is yes. And I think people that sometimes that, that see me play and look at my drafts, I think they, they may agree. Uh, on the other hand, I think there's other people that are more towards the other end too, where they just too too much of uh, just because I you know I have the, I have a feeling I have a hunch sort of thing, but you know I still try I'm still leaning more towards the spreadsheet in that I would I look for I look to improve some of these things that can be applied globally to, and now that statistics are coming out more. I think we're finding, you know, every year this, I, I make a change because I found some more data and, you know, maybe it's not first half, second half data. You know, that's just an example. You know, a player that does well over the second half, people often think he's going to have a, a breakout season the next year and it's not always true, but maybe there was something behind the numbers and he had a, nowadays I'm, I'm pretty much into this, this, this uh, velocity off the bat. So if the velocity off the bat is, high then then it wasn't so much first half second half is you know he he had a good stretch uh well that's what that is and I'll, I'll incorporate the new metric as opposed to first half second half the reason behind it um but you know i you know can you can we at, at some point incorporate everything i don't you know, i don't think so i think we can fine tune but i don't know that we can you know automate every single factor into uh into what's going to happen I just think about one time I made up a, a DFS spreadsheet to prepare for uh, one of the Tout Wars drafts, and after I I did all this work and I stack ranked everybody using the formulas that I had put in, and I thought, man, th this looks very surprising, and I should enter this lineup in a tournament because it's so counterintuitive that if I'm right, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish first, you know, I'm gonna finish in the money and make a big pile of dough. And just before I did it, I looked through and I found out that I had accidentally typed a minus sign instead of a plus sign into one of the formulas that had got copied through, of course, the entire list of players. And instead of giving them value for uh, not striking out, I was taking value away. And in, in essence, I was giving offensive players credit for striking out a lot, which was just a dumb programming mistake. And, and it just shows that the spreadsheet can create a narrative through no fault of its own that is badly, badly flawed. Yeah, what I what I what I find with more a similar thing what happens is is especially if it's a younger player and and maybe just coming up and I'm using an MLE and it just it's just it's just not going to happen either good or bad so I can't look at all every single player so someone's going to slip through the cracks sometimes a pitcher maybe uh that that you know a pitcher's promoted and I didn't notice that I 
I've got him projected for a point a 2.75 ERA and a 1.11 WHIP, and I have to go in and uh, change that. I mean, I do catch them, but the point being, you're right that you you do have to sort of do those things. The mistake I found today in my speed wasn't it wasn't quite as egregious as, as that, but um, I have had times. I think one of the the uh, a funny story back in the day when I used to work with Jason Gray, uh, Louis Gonzalez. Uh, there were two of them in the league, and I didn't know how to do lookups very well. And we had a very, very rosy projection for Louis Gonzalez, uh, the infielder. And Jason Gray went on Sirius Radio. Instead of laying me out to dry, uh, he pretty much stated the case for how Louis Gonzalez was going to hit 40 home runs that year. And uh, I've never, uh, I'll never say a bad word about Jason Gray for not hanging me out to dry. <laughs> And 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 that that's a uh, when you're using spreadsheets, that's a constant problem because there are some a lot of guys named Alex Gonzalez. I remember horror stories at one time. I think there were three Alex Gonzalez's floating around baseball, and you had to be sure that you were picking up the right one and so forth in those lookup functions. And that's why I've always wished that there would be some kind of universal standard numbering system for all the players <laughs> instead of uh, instead of using first name, last name, last name, comma, first name, last name, and and yep. all. all all those kind of things are they're just disasters and i think there's been some work towards that but some of the other databases that are out there that you can search use different numbering systems or naming systems it's it's a nightmare yeah and, and yeah and, and it's even getting worse because there's more there's more data coming up but i'm better at excel now and now i know how to use uh index numbers and, and but but uh but it was just it was just kind of you i mean it, it just folds into the whole issues with you know with spreadsheets they're necessary but be careful. <laughs> things, you know, weird, weird things can happen. I have, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the, the negative thing. When I, when the first DFS sheet that I made up, I, I flipped home and away and, and away and home. So it, it gave, it skewed up the numbers just a little bit. So that, that sort of those things can happen. And I don't know about you, but I'll, I'll, I'll design a program and I won't use it for months. And I'll go back and like, what, how, what, who designed this? And it takes me three days to figure out what I did. It's like a musician. I know I wrote the song, but I don't know how to play it anymore. It is. That, I remember way a long time ago, I had a, a Lotus 1-2-3 spreadsheet. This is how far back this goes. And and it involved named ranges and stuff like that. And, and so everything was being looked up. And it was for to manage my draft the first time I ever used a, a spreadsheet at a draft. And when I sat down at the draft table, I opened the thing up and I, I had literally no idea how to even get it running. Never mind, you know, where to type what and how where all this stuff was going to be be put out. And finally, I figured out how to where to put the guy's name because it was just a, a cell, an unmarked cell that you had to put it into. And when I pressed execute or pressed enter to have this first thing happen, of course, it was an old uh, 8088 chip uh, thing with a 640 meg uh, uh, hard drive. And <laughs> It may still be spinning away trying to figure out what the hell was going on with this giant spreadsheet that I put into it. So they're they're great tools, but boy, they're far from foolproof. And I'm the fool who proves it. Yeah, well, like I said, I wouldn't I wouldn't give it up. But um, every year, you know, I'm, I'm already we got a month left in the season. I'm already planning my off season as far as some of the changes I'm going to make with both projection engine and DFS to make things better. How I can update the you know at this point I, I've spent this entire week updating the uh the moves that came over from 
the guys promoted, and, and there was actually some trades at the deadline too. So I'm a little bit behind in some other stuff because it just takes me a little bit longer to to update all these things now. So I've already got ways that I'm in my in my mind that I'm going to meld everything together. So I update one thing, and it updates the rest. And like you may know, that's where the index numbers come in. But the stats I get from one play, I two different sheets, and they're written based on two different data data drops. So I got to combine them into one and and all this sort of thing. So it's going to be a fun off season, hopefully anyway, uh, designing some new stuff to make next year that much smoother. And of course, the tool itself gets better uh, with some adjustments, although every so often Microsoft will make a change to Excel that just changes how things work in the program in a fairly fundamental way for what I'm trying to accomplish. And then I have to spend a week learning what the new way of doing it is as far as Microsoft is concerned, which which sucks. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, you mentioned that there have been some deals right at the post-waiver deadline. And uh, there's also been quite a few call-ups. Give us uh, an idea of some players who are interesting to you, not just for the stretch of this year, but looking ahead to 2016. Well, I think the I mean. The obvious one that we saw last night was Corey Seager getting called up. And, you know, the word is that, you know, Jimmy Rollins is just in a bit of a slump and they wanted to, uh, you know, give him a day to, to get his head back and all that sort of thing. But of course, when you're, when your phenom goes up there and strokes a line drive double to right field and, and, and puts the team ahead a little bit later in the game, you know, the, <laughs> the outcry is going to be to play the kid. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, everybody listening knows who Corey Seager is, the number one or rated two prospect in the majors, uh, whether he stays at shortstop or not, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, I think that, I don't know, you know, if he, I, I think they are gonna, it is Mattingly still, and I think they will stick with Rollins, but, uh, I mean, I'm going to enjoy watching Corey Seager's at bats over the final month, even though I traded him away. In a uh, in a keeper league, so he's going to be haunting like Mike Trout and Buster Posey are haunting me. I'm going to add Corey Seager to that list, and these three players will be haunting me for at least ten years in the in the XFL, trading them all away. But uh, you know that's part of a keeper league. Um, I we mentioned Kansas City a little bit with uh, I think that I think Johnny Gomes is a guy that is potentially going to uh, play a little bit more and can help an AL only team for sure. There really weren't a whole ton of uh, of call-ups. A lot of them came up already. I mean, Minnesota's not calling up Barrios, so uh, there's really, you know, the, whole, the, the pitching there. I think we keep an eye on Steven Matz uh, with the Mets again. Uh, going to a six-man, he's probably not going to get more than three or four starts, but that might be all that you need down the stretch. Actually, the kid from uh, from Milwaukee that looks like he's 14 years old, Zach Davies, impressed me the other night, and he's probably going to be getting some starts. So if in, in, in an NL only league, I'd probably rather have him than someone like Jared Eikhoff of uh, Philadelphia. So I'd keep an eye on Zach Davies for uh, you know two or three or four stretches uh, starts. I'm sorry, down the stretch, and even uh, even Colin Ray, who's been up a little, who's already been up, but uh, he had the typical thing where he goes four or five and can't go through the next inning. Uh, he, you know, he, he made the Dodgers look silly for four innings before they finally got to him. Another NL only guy, especially in a, uh, in Petco Park, which f- for what, it, for what it's worth is playing like a pitcher's park again. Uh, and he's another guy, I think, in an NL only to, uh, to keep an eye out for. I talked with Steve Gardner from USA Today, a mutual friend, uh, just before calling you, Todd, and, uh, he's in the thick of it in a couple of his leagues. Are you in any kind of shape in any kind of your leagues? 
I'm doing in the uh, I'm, I'm I'm hanging in there very well in my high stakes leagues. I, the industry leagues, it just wasn't my year, but I've uh, I have I have very good reasons to continue to follow the box scores in some NFBC leagues, and I'm also doing um, it's called HeadToHead.com. Uh, it's a it's actually a head to head league. Uh, high, it's not it's medium stakes, and uh, I've got two first place teams in there, so it's going to be interesting. You know, it's the whole thing. You know, can I keep it going or will I run into a bad streak? The whole head-to-head thing. But uh, one of my teams is the juggernaut. The other one is the team that's not scoring as many points but has managed to sneak itself into a playoff spot anyway. So uh, it's going to be fun for uh, for a year or the for, for first time in a while to uh, to see how this ends up. But yeah, the NFBC um, having my AL and NL only teams, which are sort of my babies. Struggling there, but I'm a couple of the mixed teams where we should come out ahead by the end of the year. Well, uh, of course, the best of luck to you, Todd, in that, and I guess we'll see you in Arizona the start of November. Yep, just announced that I'm going to be on a uh, a panel with Lenny Melnick and 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 Ron Ron Chandler, and uh, there'll be another person or two invited to it, and it's going to be talking about uh, how can DFS and seasonal fantasy coexist. So that should be a nice, spirited conversation. And Todd, I've just uh, been informed a few days ago that I'll be hosting a panel talking about 2016 keepers, so that'll be interesting as well. I know my buddy Lars on that panel, so that should be uh, another spirited discussion. So that'll be fun. Of course, we encourage everybody to come out to First Pitch Arizona in Phoenix uh, around about the end of October, the start of November. Todd, thanks so much for, again, talking with us this week and all season long. You've been a fountain of great information, a, uh, a lot of fun to talk to. It's always been a, a real genuine pleasure, and I'm looking forward already to next year. Uh, ditto, ditto on my end. It's, it's a pleasure to speak with you. and. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk a few times before then and look forward to hanging out in Arizona. Todd Zola is a fantasy baseball analyst at ESPN.com. He also writes for Fantasy Alarm and MastersBall.com. When we come back, our last kick at the can for the commentaries. We have the minor league minute. We have playing time, frequent flyers, and matchups all coming up next. Stay tuned on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes. You're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, and pitcher matchups. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Angels left-handed pitching prospect Sean Newcomb is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Los Angeles Angels Sean Newcomb is making a strong case that he's ready to make his big league debut. The 22-year-old lefty was the 15th overall pick in the 2014 draft after a standout career at Hartford. 
At 6'5", 245 pounds, he has an ideal power pitching frame, and he comes after hitters with a plus mid-90s heater that tops out at 98 miles an hour with good late life, especially up in the zone. He backs up the heat with a good slurvy breaking ball and a much-improved changeup that has a chance to be a plus third pitch. Newcomb does occasionally struggle with command, and he has walked 4.7 batters per nine since turning pro, but that is more than offset by the swings and misses he generates. Newcomb started the year at low A in the Midwest League and has been dominant all year, compiling a 9-1 record with a 2.01 ERA across three different levels and striking out 158 batters in just 128 innings pitched. When first drafted, scouts viewed Newcomb as a mid-rotation workhorse, but his improved changeup and swing and miss ability have him looking more like a top-of-the-rotation starter. When first drafted, scouts viewed Newcomb as a mid-rotation workhorse, but his improved changeup and swing and miss ability have him looking more like a top-of-the-rotation starter. And for those in AL-only formats, Sean Newcomb is a must-own. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups coverage of prospects like Los Angeles infielder Corey Seager, Cubs right-hander C.J. Edwards, Atlanta infielder Hector Oliveira, Kansas City right-hander Miguel Almonte, and many more. And there's our watch list report, a quick hit look at minor leaguers on the verge of call-up because of changes on the big league roster, their own performance, or both. Many players in the watch list are top-level prospects, and many are not, but they can all provide short-term fantasy value in the right situation. In the latest edition, part two of our September call-ups analysis with such players as Minnesota right-hander Jose Barrios, Milwaukee left-hander Josh Hader, Chicago White Sox outfielder Matt Tuiasasopo, and many more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players gaining or losing playing time. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at keeping tabs on innings limits in Chicago and Washington as we hit September. Forecasting big league rotations in September can often be a fool's errand given the numerous amounts of roster expansions, inning limits, late season shutdowns, etc. But it can also create buying opportunities if your need of starts down the stretch. A couple of examples to point out. First off, the Chicago White Sox. BaseballHQ.com's Mike Shears noted in a Playing Time Tomorrow column this week on the site that Carlos Rodon, Chicago's 22-year-old rookie, is creeping up on 130 innings and he's a prime candidate to get shut down given that the Southsiders have little to play for the rest of the way. Chicago also has John Danks in the rotation, who fantasy owners and White Sox fans have probably seen enough of already, and he could be stopped at any time as well. Shutdowns to Danks or Rodon will create an opening for Eric Johnson, a 25-year-old starter who has had great success in the minor leagues this year. Johnson has a 2.37 ERA over 132 innings at AAA Charlotte, with an impressive 3.3 strikeout-to-walk rate and more strikeouts than innings pitch. News recently just broke that Johnson will start Chicago's game on Sunday, September 6th, and he's certainly worth the speculation for owners in need of starting pitching. Johnson's likely to stick in Chicago's rotation the rest of the way. 
Another case of a shutdown could be to Joe Ross for the Nationals. Ross is already 25 to 30 innings over his 2014 total, and Washington will certainly want to be cautious with their 22-year-old rookie who's put up excellent skills in his big league debut. A Ross shutdown would be great news for Tanner Roark or Doug Fister, so keep an, eye on, keep an eye out on what the Nats and other teams across baseball decide to do as rotations remain in flux over the season's final couple weeks. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and brings his playing time commentary here every week to the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Now it's time for our frequent flyers comment, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver helpful returns. This week's frequent flyers, Kelby Tomlinson, Cameron Rupp, and Aaron Altair. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. It's September, and we're coming down the home stretch. This week's edition of Frequent Flyers will profile three players who may help your team both this season and quite possibly next season, beginning with San Francisco's 25-year-old second baseman, Kelby Tomlinson. Filling in for Joe Panic, who's on the DL, Tomlinson has been a pleasant surprise. Tomlinson's batting average of 328 in August mirrors his 321 batting average through two levels of the minors this season. As recently noted in the August 26th edition of Playing Time Today, Tomlinson already has several minor league seasons where he batted 300 under his belt. BaseballHQ.com's Rob Carroll also points out that while the results of his first 45 at-bats have been fine, his 42% hits per balls in play and 33% line drive rate are prime for normalization. In other words, although Tomlinson has demonstrated that he's capable of hitting for average, it's important to remember that Kelby Tomlinson, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Even so, Tomlinson could end your team's stolen base totals in September. He's already stolen 21 bases this year in the minors, making him worth a flyer, especially in daily and NL-only leagues. Our second frequent flyer takes us to Philadelphia, where 26-year-old backup catcher Cameron Rupp has been made, making quite an impression. Rupp had seven home runs in the month of August and was ranked second in home runs for the month among National League catchers. Only two home runs behind Chicago's Kyle Schwarber, who had nine round trippers in August. But Schwarber batted 221 with an 861 OPS, and Rupp batted 310 with a 1086 OPS in August. Sure, it's a small sample size, and to be clear, we're not, and I repeat, not, suggesting that Cameron Rupp has greater long-term value than Kyle Schwerber, but we are suggesting that Rupp's numbers in August could point to an affordable option at an otherwise scarce position. Although BaseballHQ.com projects that Rupp will only bat 197 with maybe one more home run this month as a backup to 36-year-old catcher Carlos Ruiz in Philadelphia, Rupp could be an intriguing keeper league option. Remember, once a player displays a skill, he owns it. In this case, it's not necessarily about the number of home runs Rupp hit, as much as it is about finding a catcher like Rupp with the ability to hit for power. Cameron Rupp is worth a flyer, especially in keeper leagues. Finally, our last frequent flyer is also from Philadelphia. He's 24-year-old Phillies outfielder Aaron Altair, who should see significant playing time following the injury to Michael Franco. Altair batted 293 through two levels of the minors this year with 14 home runs and 16 stolen bases. That power-speed combination, if it continues to develop, may be exactly what the Phillies have been searching for as they opt for younger talent in the rebuilding process. 
although Altair's actual to-date Lydia weighted power index of 259 currently fits the profile of an elite slugger, BaseballHQ.com projects Altair's linear weighted power index will regress to 115 for the balance of the season, which indicates only slightly above average power. Likewise, Altair's actual to date base performance value of 127 is well above his projected BPV of 76, signaling possible regression in September, according to BaseballHQ.com. Even so, Altair has been batting third in the lineup in nearly half of his games thus far, showing that the Phillies have confidence in his abilities. If you have confidence in your ability to win a championship, consider adding Kelby Tomlinson, Cameron Rupp, and Aaron Altair, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and our frequent Flyers commentator here on Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's our pitcher matchups report. BaseballHQ.com has algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with a matchup rating of plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Matchup ratings between 0 and 2 are dealer's choice. You assess them based on your risk tolerance and your league or game context. Now looking at matchups for this weekend in Major League Baseball, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. It's Labor Day weekend, and the holiday marks the end of summer vacation and the beginning of the school year. The end of our BaseballHQ.com radio podcasts for the season and the beginning of the stretch run into the Major League Baseball postseason. So let's use the BaseballHQ.com pitcher matchups tool to look at some weekend matchups that may reveal some potential keepers or draft picks for next year, as well as a couple of pitchers to trade away or avoid. Josh Tomlin has reemerged for Cleveland, and we'll see if he should reappear on your keeper or draft lists for 2016, as he heads into Detroit to face Alfredo Simon on Saturday. Also on Saturday in San Diego, right-hander Tyson Ross takes on the Dodgers' Brett Anderson. Both have had surprising seasons in 2015, one a little worse than expected, and the other a little better. We'll find out if either is worth targeting in 2016. Stephen Matz of the Mets had his start bumped back from Saturday to Sunday, so instead of Brad Hand, he'll face still another southpaw at Miami, Chris Narvison. In a battle of right-handers from the first and second place teams in the National League Central on Sunday, Garrett Cole goes into St. Louis to face John Lackey as the only two teams in the National League with winning percentages above 600 square off. The return of Miguel Cabrera has been no elixir for the Detroit Tigers as they've won only seven of their past 20 and two of their past 10 games. The Cleveland Indians are only marginally better, but at least are going in the other direction, winning 11 of their past 20 and seven of their past 10 games. BaseballHQ.com starting pitcher buyer's guide analyst Stephen Nickman called Josh Tomlin a sneaky September stash, especially in deep leagues. Nickman noted Tomlin's enticing high-command, low-risk profile, featuring a dominance rate, or strikeouts per nine innings, of 8-9, and a first-pitch strike rate of 67%, a control rate, or bases on balls per nine innings, of 07, for a whip of 076 a ground ball rate of 39%, and a BPV of 158 in 26 innings pitched over four starts, all of which were peak U.S. dominant. Tomlin's ERA of 308 has been aided by a hit rate of 19% and a strand rate of 85%, but his expected ERA is still only 309. 
His matchup rating for Saturday is 244, and he should be on your radar if not on your list. In case you haven't heard, Alfredo Simon's luck ran out in July of 2014, and he's not worth owning. His base performance value since then is 41, including a minus 15 for the just-completed month of August 2015 and 35 for the year. Forget about him. Tyson Ross's nemesis this season has been control. After posting rates of 3-2 and 3-3 in the past two years, his 2015 control rate is 4-0. With a first pitch strike rate of 58% this year and last, there's not much hope of him improving upon his whip of 135. But his saving graces have been a remarkable ground ball rate of 62% and a fine dominance rate of 9-6 for an ERA of 327 and an expected ERA of 309. With a base performance value of 104. In 28 starts, Ross has allowed more than three earned runs only three times, and he owns an average PQS score of 3.9 at home compared with the 3.5 on the road. He's at home with a matchup rating of 233 on Saturday, so you can use him in this one and move him down your list just a bit for 2016. Opposing Ross in San Diego's pitcher-friendly Petco Park is Dodger Southpaw Brett Anderson who has been surprisingly healthy this season, notching 26 starts. He also has allowed more than three earned runs only three times in those 26 starts. In nine starts since July 7, though, Anderson has three PQS doms and two PQS disasters. Some fatigue should be expected since his 152 innings pitched is more than his past three years combined and is most since 2009. But Anderson may be worth the risk reflected in his matchup rating of 154. The Dodgers are eight games under 500 on the road, but they are fifth in the majors against right-handed pitchers and third against teams below 500 like the Padres. So add Anderson to the bottom of your list for 2016 and feel free to use him if you need to gamble on Saturday. Steven Matz is coming back from a lat strain suffered after two PQS dominant starts to begin his major league career. There's not much to go on in 14 innings pitched, but he's shown enough to have a BPV of 93 and to earn the highest matchup rating of the weekend at 343 for his Sunday contest in Miami's pitcher-friendly Marlins Park. The Mets have won 21 of their past 30, 13 of their past 20, and 7 of their past 10 games. They are below 500 on the road, but they feast on teams under 500 overall like the Marlins. Go ahead and get Mats in there for Sunday, and he's shown enough to be on your list of targets for 2016, too. The Marlins send out left-hander Chris Narvison to face Mats. Narvison is a nice story coming back from rotator cuff surgery and finger injuries, but he's not roster-worthy. He's had six games out of the bullpen, allowing five earned runs in 12 innings pitched, and two games started, allowing seven earned runs in nine innings pitched. His first pitch strike rate of 51% and expected ERA of 446 are red flags. And Narvison's only future may be as a lefty specialist. So steer clear of him this weekend and for 2016. St. Louis and Pittsburgh rank 1-2 in the National League for a number of measures, including overall record, record versus right-handers, and record versus other clubs over 500. It should be an exciting series, with Garrett Cole and John Lackey locking horns in the Sunday finale. The cards hold home field advantage and Lackey has the higher matchup rating at 274 to Cole's 169. 
Cole has made 10 starts since a PQS Disaster Zero versus Cincinnati June 24, posting PQS dominant scores in seven and threes in three, for a base performance value of 130. That makes him an excellent risk-reward play and puts him high on your list for 2016. Lackey has made 12 starts since his PQS Disaster Zero in Coors Field June 8, and he's put up PQS Dom scores in 8. Threes in 4, and a 2 for a BPV of 86. His strand rate of 79% has given him an XERA of 396 and an ERA of 287 to go with a whip of 120 and a command ratio of 3-1. He's a nice mid-level target for 2016 and should be good to go in this one. So this weekend, you can get used to owning 2016 targets Josh Tomlin, Tyson Ross, Stephen Matz, Garrett Cole, and John Lackey, ignoring Alfredo Simon and Chris Narvison. If you need a risk-reward play for either this weekend or next year, consider Brett Anderson. Thanks for listening to Weekend Matchups this year, and best of luck for a great finish to your 2015 season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 52, the final show of the 2015 fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition, senior fantasy sports editor at USA Today, Steve Gardner. I also want to thank our regular Talk with Todd commentator, Todd Zola, and our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Minor League Minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our Playing Time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our Frequent Flyers commentator, Alex Becky, And our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I also want to say thank you to Ray Murphy, who contributed master notes throughout the season. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. And please feel free to send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. This was the last show of the 2015 regular season, and we look forward to coming back again next January as we get ready for the 2016 fantasy baseball season. That'll be the return of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.